Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're delighted to speak to Brother Hamza Swartzis. Assalamu alaikum, Akhi Hamza. Great to have you back again on Blogging Theology. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Zakhla here for the opportunity. Always happy to be here. Alhamdulillah. Brother Hamza doesn't need an introduction to most of you who are already familiar with him. Nevertheless, for those of you who are not very familiar with the da'wah circuit, uh, Hamza is a popular Islamic speaker and essayist. He has a master's and a postgraduate certificate from, in philosophy from the University of London. And he is currently continuing his postgraduate studies in the field. He is the author of the popular book, The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. And he is also the founder and CEO of the Sapiens Institute. Today, Hamza is going to be discussing the topic of freedom of speech from an Islamic perspective. And he will also be probing the secular paradigm upon which many of its advocates base their stance. Now, the whole issue of freedom of speech is an endless and ongoing heated subject that will always remain relevant to discuss and revisit because. There are always new incidents and controversies arising which spur and reignite passionate debates pertaining to the topic. But how ought we as Muslims approach the subject? And what are the dimensions of freedom of speech in Islam? Can even our non-Muslim listeners hearing this also benefit from the Islamic stance by recognizing and appreciating its perspective, even if only partially, from a mutually identifiable, rational, and ethical standpoint. Well, we look forward to Brother Hamza shedding light on this issue and providing us with his uh, insightful perspectives. So without further ado, Akhi Hamza, the floor is all yours. Okay, Jazakallah, thank you for the opportunity. Now, I want you to interject and get involved as much as possible so we could have an unpacking of some of these concepts and ideas, because I do appreciate sometimes people have what you call the curse of knowledge or the curse of previous information. And sometimes speakers or teachers or people who articulate a, a certain idea or a concept, they have certain assumptions or certain previous information that you think is already well known, or you feel that these assumptions don't need to be expressed but sometimes they do, and sometimes we miss that in the teaching process or in the articulation of these particular ideas. So please get me to unpack as many assumptions and bits and pieces, right? Inshallah. So obviously we start by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and alhamdulillah. Now, the first thing I want to do is just basically summarize what we're going to be covering. So the objective of this kind of online seminar or presentation is to explain how we can use as Muslims and even as non-Muslims, the whole topic of freedom of speech to share Islam or to understand Islam or the Islamic paradigm. And 
in order for us to achieve that, we have to unpack certain ideas, certain domains of knowledge or certain concepts. And these include the philosophy of freedom of speech, the objectives of freedom of speech, the limits of freedom of speech, the significance of values. And this is extremely important in today's presentation because value is going to play a, a huge role in understanding the limits and the scope of freedom of speech. We're also going to talk about the ideological context, the importance of civility, and we're going to briefly elaborate on the Islamic civilization with regards to values and related topics and freedom of speech. Now, we're not going to be exploring an in-depth explanation on how to reconcile or understand Islamic law with contemporary human rights and international law. That's not the scope today. I'm not a legal theorist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in international law. So I'm going to kind of stay in my lane. I have a academic background in philosophy, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on. But when it comes to the nuances of, you know, what does the international law say about certain specific issues and does it align itself with, you know, contemporary applications of Islamic law, that's beyond me. So I'm going to stay in my lane. Yeah. <laughs> so there are some preliminary notes and these notes are for everybody, but more specifically for Muslims. I think it's important for us to understand that when we talk about freedom of speech and related ideas and we talk about Islam, really, we're trying to defend Islam. We're trying to share Islam. And in the Islamic tradition, this is a virtue. This is something that is one of the greatest forms of ibadah, the greatest forms of worship. And there are various places in the book of God, the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where he's telling us to call people to his way. For example, in chapter 16, when Allah says, call to the way, to the sabil, to the way of your Lord, with hikmah, with wisdom, which is applied knowledge, right? You know, applying your knowledge in the right way at the right time and so on and so forth. With And with good instruction, with ihsan, with a sense of goodness, with a sense of excellence and debate or argue or discuss when, with them in ways that are best. Interestingly, the, the grammarian, Jamakhshari, the classical grammarian, he said this means to discuss with a, without any harshness and without any gruffness, right? So it's important that we share Islam and we call people to the way of Allah. Also, in one of my favorite chapters in the Quran, favorite verses in the Quran, chapter 41, Surah Fusilat, verses 33 and 34, Allah kind of summarizes how we should share Islam or the holistic approach to sharing and defending Islam. Allah says, who is better in speech than the one who calls to God, calls to Allah, does righteousness and says, I am one of those who submit, I am one of the Muslims, which is very interesting because you have the calling to God, calling to his oneness, the fact that he's worthy of worship, that we must single out and direct our internal and external acts of worship to God alone. And we are actually walking the walk, right? We are internalizing what it means to be a believer, that way of being, of submission, we're, we're internalizing it. So we're surrendering to God. And we say we're one of those who submit to God, which can include from a pondering point of view that we're just humble. Yeah, we're sharing Islam. We're calling to God's oneness. We're, we're as righteous as possible. Yeah, we're going to slip up here and there, but we're as righteous as possible. And I'm just one of the Muslims. I'm humble. It could also mean that I am connecting my righteousness to the fact that I surrender myself to God. So it's a kind of a holistic approach to sharing Islam. And what's interesting after this verse, verse 33, 
the verse that follows verse 34, one of my favorite verses, I mentioned this many times and, you know, emphasis and uh, repetition is a form of emphasis that God says good and evil are not the same. Repel by that which is better. And between two people, there's any hatred it would turn to intimate friendship. Now, interestingly, the Arabic word for repel in this verse is not followed by a direct object. So it could mean repel anything by, by that which is better. And the scholars, the ulama say repelling by that which is better means repelling uh, with what is more virtuous and what is more beautiful. So we must be people of virtue and people of beauty. And that doesn't mean always being nice, by the way, or being too soft, right? Because we're people of wisdom as well. Sometimes we have to be positively assertive and, you know, give people a good shake, right? <laughs> also, the Quran says, say, this is my way. I invite to God, to Allah with insight, with basira, with deep knowledge, with 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 uh with being sapient, right? That's what it means. Basira means sapient, deep knowledge and having insight. Also, the Quran says in the the chapter of uh, Al-Furqan, the Furqan, uh, chapter Furqan, I believe, but chapter 25, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and strive against them, bihi, so the Arabic is with it, which means the Quran, a great striving, jihadan kabira, a great striving. So commentaries on this include that you're using, you're not using the Quran to hit people, by the way. Yeah? <laughs> That's not the kind of struggle and striving we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> jihad struggle is a profound, multi-layered concept. In this context, is using the arguments of the Quran, using Quranic values, using the Quranic perspective and so on and so forth. So I wanted to have that as a preliminary note, which is very important. The second... Always, always a very important reminder. The second note is... Think about it. You know, Muslims, as a matter of aqidah, as a matter of creed, that we must love the Prophet wasallam more than our own selves, more than our mothers, more than our fathers. And, you know, there's so many reasons why we should love him. But the easiest kind of one-line statement is, well, Al-Wudud, Allah, who is Al-Wudud, the most loving, the Prophet is his khabib, his 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 he he loves the Prophet right? He is the the love of Allah. So how can we not love that which the most loving loves? <laughs> it's yeah. as simple as that, right? There's nothing else that we need to say, really. There's so much more, but from the, that perspective, you know, we we love the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and love includes respect and honoring and defending. And interestingly, there is a prophetic tradition that is authentic, that is narrated in uh, Tirmidhi, where Abu Darda radiallahu an reported that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, whoever defends the reputation of his brother, God, Allah, would defend his face from the hellfire on the day of resurrection. Um, Sorry, I get choked up. So what about yeah. the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, right? You know, we're not talking about any ordinary brother and we have obviously love and respect for our brothers and sisters in Islam, but what about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, right? What about defending his honor and his reputation, right? Which is uh, something to think about. The final preliminary note is, you know, interestingly, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he taught us to have the most sublime character. And when you look at the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. 
you know, we say uh, the Prophet is a rahmah, he's a mercy to all the world. He was compassionate and kind and wise and brave and courageous and strong. And he was the best father and the best husband and the best so-and-so. He was the best at everything, right? In every kind of function and, and, and domain of human activity, he excelled. And these are not just slogans, by the way. And these these are based on his life. And when you consider the, the moral variables and the context and how he responded to certain situations, you're like, subhanAllah, right? He, he passed that test. You know, it's easy to be like a new age spiritualist and say, one must be compassionate and loving and kind. You know, with all due respect, they don't have the ability to be anything else because they're relatively, you know, they don't have the physical stature or they don't even have the social economic power so you know they're morally naive from that perspective you have no other choice but to be nice you know the true test of character is when there is a particular context and how you react and we see this with the Prophet in the conquest of mecca right the conquest of mecca when there was a general amnesty and he there was no bloodshed and he said this is a day of mercy and when he was going into mecca on his riding beast right he was overwhelmed by humility, overwhelmed by understanding that the success was from Allah alone, right? Just like Shu'ib alayhi salam, where he says in the Quran, when Allah says that Shu'ib alayhi salam says, indeed, my success comes from Allah alone. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi salam, he had the ability, and one would argue maybe even the legal and moral justification to sort them all out because they were oppressing them they, they they were fighting him they were torturing his his companions and so on and so forth but he walked in to mecca the conquest of mecca with his everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. His head, you know, I think almost touching his, the saddle of his riding beast. He was overwhelmed, right? And he was humble. Now, he had the ability to do something totally different, but look how he entered Mecca with humility and with, with rahmah, with intense mercy, right? There was a general amnesty. There are other nuances, but there's no need to yeah. talk about them now. Generally speaking, yeah. there was this general amnesty and it was, it was a, an expression of prophetic mercy, prophetic forgiveness, and prophetic humility. So he, although he had the ability to do something totally different. Yeah. Likewise, when it came to the, the battle of Uhud, right? Uh, one of the famous battles when, you know, many of the scholars, they discuss this battle and they say this was like a, a failure. It was a loss, right? And in actual fact, it was one of the greatest things for the community in retrospect, because if we, if the Muslims were successful in that battle, then the lesson would have been actually, if you disobey the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you're going to be successful, right? Oh, so one of okay. the greatest, yeah, one of the greatest lessons of that is if you move away from obeying the Prophet, if you move away from connecting with the Prophet sallallahu with obeying his commands and understanding them, um, then you're not going to have success. So when you come closer to the Sunnah, closer to the way of Allah, closer to the Prophet you're going to have success, which is very interesting connected to the whole concept of love. Because Allah says in the Quran, say, 
to the Prophet ﷺ, say, if you love Allah, then follow me, meaning follow the Prophet ﷺ, and Allah will love you and forgive your sins. Allahu Akbar. So following the Prophet ﷺ is actually a key to opening the door of Allah's special love, right? So in the battle of Uhud, he, the Prophet was injured, right? He was injured. And Abu Hurairah, and this is an authentic hadith in Sahih Muslim, uh, he, it was basically reported that he said that, you know, someone, uh, it was said that, oh, Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, pray against the, the mushrikeen, the idolaters. And the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, verily, indeed, unquestionably, I was not sent to invoke curses, but rather I was only sent as a mercy. Think about this. This is a battle that was lost. It, there was a grave mistake where the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Hamza radiallahu an, was, was killed. And, you know, reports say that he was mutilated. Sahaba were killed. The Prophet ﷺ was injured. Right. And you just finished battle. And when we're, when we're talking about battle here, we're not talking about the kind of distance. You don't even yeah. see your enemy. They're like ants and you press a button, which there is a kind of dehumanization going on. We're talking about, you know, swords. Right. We're talking about you know, the, the kind of uh, profound intimacy. And I don't mean this in a, in a, in a positive way of, of that type. You know, I, I think yeah. at, no, at no point in the seerah was the Prophet said, I'm so close to being killed uh, yes, as he yes. was in, in, during the battle of prophet so it, it's Absolutely. immediately after that experience as well exactly so and what how does he respond i was not sent to invoke curses but rather i was sent as a mercy and what's interesting here is is he justified to make dua and say oh allah you know destroy the enemies one would argue maybe that is the case but in this context look how he responds which shows what the maqsad what the goal of these situations are and the goal of warfare in Islam is not to destroy people and to curse people, but there is a higher maqsad, there's a higher goal, which obviously you could discuss with someone far more qualified on blogging theology in the future. <laughs> so I wanted to mention this because when we articulate these things and we want to defend the honor of the Prophet, ﷺ, we should do so in a way that is in line with the Sunnah, in line with the mercy of the Prophet, ﷺ, in line with the hikmah, the wisdom of the Prophet. ﷺ. And, you know, we have to understand who are you standing in for? And we forget that as people who want to share the message of Islam, we think it's just about me. No, we are standing in for someone. We are standing in for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Just thinking about that is overwhelming. That's who we're standing in for. He, he passed away, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Sahaba have passed away. The Tabi'een have passed away. We are standing in for these people. Just thinking about that as a kind of connection between yourself, sharing Islam, and the best people to have walked this planet, that would drastically create a paradigm shift in how you should express yourself and how you should be. We are standing in for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, let's do this. Now, when I did this slide... Elon Musk did not take over Twitter, right? But this is really this is quite relevant because relevant. <laughs> yeah, the reason it's relevant is because when there was discussions with regards to Twitter and Elon Musk and the whole idea of freedom of speech, you can see what Elon Musk says about freedom of speech and now and you can see what a commentator in the famous uh, newspaper The Guardian what they said with regards to freedom of speech. And there are kind of interesting takes on freedom of speech. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is for us to understand that 
do not think that there's one liberal secular view. Do not think that mm-hmm. there is only one view on freedom of speech, even amongst the secularists or the liberals when they discuss freedom of speech. They appreciate nuance. Yes, you may not think that when it comes to dealing with Islam and Muslims and the defamatory cartoons of the Prophet wasallam. they're quite united to a certain degree against religion, specifically Muslims, but that's because of an ideological issue, not a conceptual one per se. Because they're ideologues, many of them at the end of the day, and we have to understand that there are boundaries to tolerance, and we have to understand that this whole idea of liberal secular tolerance doesn't really exist. There are lines that are drawn, and they're only really tolerant of religion, religious minorities as secularized and liberalized versions of, of themselves. You can't be authentic to your tradition and be totally accepted yeah, in a liberal secular society. And th- this, this, this is quite a fact. Uh, if you look at what happens with, with religious minorities, it's happening even with their own people, with the Christians, right? <laughs> you know, they, yeah, yeah. they have to change everything about the Bible almost now, you know, when it comes to LGBTQ+, when it comes to, you know, postmodern I- I- ideas and liberal ideas, you know, the, the Bible or the clergy, the Christian tradition molds itself to the kind of sh- shift, shifting sands of the current ideology, right? So, you know, as Dr. Shabir Akhtar, he mentions a, a very interesting book in his uh, point in his book, um, Be Careful of Muhammad, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in the second edition, I think it's the second edition, he mentions that essentially that you know, Muslims are not going to accept to be, generally speaking, the pow- the powerful nature of our tradition and, and, and Islamic orthodoxy, we're not going to accept being a denigrated minority and a subjugated uh, version of ourselves, right? Because that's Islam doesn't allow that. Islam, you know, teaches us, yes, we live peacefully and harm- harmoniously with everybody, even in a secular context. But we have our we have our things that we consider sacred. We have our red lines, and we're not going to be denigrated and subjugated that way. And we're not going to be liberalized and secularized versions of ourselves because we have a very robust uh, spiritual and intellectual tradition. And that's an important point to make because the liberals are kind of and secularists, generally speaking, are united as a front against you know Muslims when we when we rightly and rightfully, as we're going to discuss, you know, draw our lines and we have we have our red lines concerning the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But amongst themselves, they have their own nuances. So um, Elon Musk said. Um, on Twitter, by free speech, I simply mean that which matches the law. I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they would ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. So according to his notion of freedom of speech, if he still has these views, you know, if it was if there were blasphemy laws in the UK, then it's law. Then it's not contrary to freedom of speech. If you're not allowed to denigrate and degrade Isa, Jesus, upon whom be peace, and Muhammad, upon whom be peace, and that's enshrined in law, then that's fine. It's it's it, it's not contrary to freedom of speech if you blaspheme, right? Sorry, if you, yeah, it's, it will be contrary to the law if you blaspheme. And if someone says no, and, and if it's part of the law that you're not allowed to blaspheme against Jesus, against Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, if that's part of the law now, then fighting against and, and censoring those people would not be contrary to freedom of speech as per the kind of assessment of Mr. 
Elon Musk. Now, do you think he's uh, speaking as a moralist here, whereby he's equating legal rights with moral rights? So basically, you know, uh, we are only morally entitled to express ourselves as long as the law permits it. Or do you think he's putting his CEO or potential CEO hat, because you're saying this was before he purchased uh, Twitter, hat on just to reassure governments around the world, look, we have no intention to break any of your laws, so please don't block Twitter. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I think he's trying to be consistent. So, you know, he's not not stupid. He's smart. So he's thinking, look, there, there, there are very few philosophers or thinkers or activists that advocate for an absolute version of freedom of speech. In actual fact, I don't even think they exist, right? And if I, they do... I can't imagine anyone who does. Yeah, I can't even mention any names. So there is a consensus that freedom of speech is not absolute. There's going to be restrictions because there's a competition of values what we're going to, and we're going to discuss this in a few moments. Mm-hmm. So I think he's just being consistent. He said, look, if it's the law, then it's the law. You know, we have mm-hmm. to... And the law... And for him, he may argue that you know, democracy, if you like, because in a second liberal paradigm, you participate in the democratic system. And that is like the will of the people. And you have representatives that become legislators and they basically pass laws. So for him, I think he's saying, well, we there is a competition of values between f- the ability to express ourselves or liberty to express ourselves and the will of the people, democracy. That's a value for him, right? So he's reconciling that by saying, okay, if the will of the people say these are the laws and they happen to re- restrict some parts of speech, then no problem. You know, I believe in any speech as long as it doesn't contradict the law. So for him, I think he's just being consistent as a kind of Democrat. And I don't mean that from a U.S. political perspective. I mean it as someone who believes in, believes in the will. Pro, pro-democracy. Yeah, yeah, pro-democracy. So contrastingly, you have, and I can't pronounce his name or her name. Uh, I do apologize. I forgot the gender wrong. Siva Vedya, Vedya Nathan. Yeah. So the they uh, he or she i really apologize i don't even know the the gender um which is very unprofessional of me so i do apologize and they say it's unclear how musk arrived at such a juvenile juvenile understanding of free speech or the law Uh, trolling is an expression that crushes expression it undermines the ability of groups of people to think collectively and productively about serious issues Musk knows this. He is the richest troll in the history of the world, and he is frighteningly unserious. If Musk understood the real value of speech, to deliberately, d- deeply, to to deliberate deeply and respectfully to work through differences and arrive either at solid truth claims or preferred paths of action, he would understand that granting trans people respect, allowing them to participate in conversations that do not get swamped back into facile interrogations of the choices and identities enhances the diversity and quality of public conversation. Respecting the humanity and dignity of others makes everyone more free to discuss and debate issues seriously, deeply and calmly. Subhanallah. Yeah. Is, you know, I was going to say, you know, the, the first the first paragraph that you read, the first the trolling's expression, of course, is expression of training. You know, uh, I'm like, OK, uh, I'm not I'm nodding in approval there. But suddenly now, you know what this individual is is really speaking about and tying uh, his or her values, uh, you know, uh, into the equation. And, and if and if trolling involved trolling, you know, conservative opinions or religions or whatnot, this individual may not have stepped up and. Uh, you know, uh, and condemned trolling in this particular context. Sure. And look, what's interesting, the commentator is actually basically saying you need to 
understand that there are goals to freedom of speech, which we agree with. And we're going to discuss this in the presentation and to degrade or to have some types of expression in their context, trolling or to have some types of expression uh, and to allow that expression to, uh, to give it platform could be contrary to the objectives of freedom of speech. That's what they're basically saying. But well, they believe in maqasid. They also believe yeah, in maqasid believe in, or in objectives. Exactly. But here's the point. <laughs> well, I want to see this person's commentary when it comes to the defamatory cartoons of the Prophet or when That's it comes right. to denigrating minorities and, and, you know, symbolic figures of already denigrated minorities, right? Uh, where are your voices saying, oh, if we allow this to happen, it's not going to facilitate dialogue and discussion and civility in order for us to achieve the objectives of freedom of speech. And that's very interesting because I always say, generally speaking, kufr, the rejection of truth, always contradicts itself. So when it can, comes to the trans people here or and so on and so forth, they will throw the kind of values card. They will say, no, we have to have... We have to facilitate the objectives of freedom of speech, like truth, accountability, and progress. And the way to do that is sometimes by getting these 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 people who want to denigrate or these people who want to, de- de- uh, you know, remove the dignity of other people. We need to stop them, right? Because it's not going to achieve the high, you know, the maqasid, the high yeah. objectives of freedom of speech. That these, I mean, the- uh, you know, it, uh, I, I always. You know, uh, I always find this baffling. Uh, I mean, uh, it's it's as if they can't, uh, as if they don't expect that people can see right through th- their selectivity and their double standards here. I mean, I would show a little more appreciation and consider someone, uh, you know, more serious inter- uh, interlocutor. If he were to just, or she were to be upfront and saying, look, obviously I'm not an absolutist of freedom of speech. And to be honest with you, this really isn't about freedom of speech. At the end of the day, I'm a liberal who believes in one, two, three, four, five wholeheartedly. I have good reasons for thinking why I should believe in these things. And I'm going to advocate for freedom of speech policies and boundaries and restrictions to accommodate and to enable the proliferation of my views. At least you're being honest if you say that. There should be no shame in you saying that. Just, just say that, you know, I strongly believe that values five, four, five, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five are inherently worthy of being adopted by others. And I'm going to pursue uh, legal policies that would enable the proliferation dissemination of these values that I have adopted. That would be yeah. more honest, uh, more intellectually honest to say than rather than painting this as if this is all about freedom of speech, actually thinking that people are not going to poke holes uh, you know, in that and, and actually see through what, what's re- actually going on here. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and, 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 you know, that authenticity needs to be there, especially when it comes to public discourse. And when I say this, we Muslims need to be authentic too. Now, what does authenticity mean? It basically means you don't have any undeclared negative intentions. Mm. That's what it basically means. And when it comes to public discourse and dialogue and discussion, you know, the art of listening and the art of understanding is that you actually are committed to people's goodness and guidance. This is the prophetic approach. That requires you to be authentic, meaning you don't have any undeclared negative intentions. Now, uh, as you can see from this commentary here, there's a blatant kind of uh, liberal contradiction because when it comes to, you know, in this context, the trans people and people trolling, then they have one particular view on freedom of speech. When it comes to the cartoons or the defamatory cartoons of the Prophet and so on and so forth, then they 
they they give up the the their logic if you like and they they adopt a different conception of freedom of speech so you're right they should just come out and just be very honest these are my values you know when it comes to religion i don't care you guys are backward we we, we you're lucky that we tolerate you you know they should just be honest right yeah. this yeah. kind of you know the kind of secular liberal arrogance uh, yeah. and, and and exceptionalism that they have sometimes yeah. but anyway so i want to just make just make the point that there are differences of opinion amongst them and obviously some of them contradict uh, they contradict themselves um and uh, some of them are actually interesting because they agree with our perspective as well, which we're going to discuss in a, in, in a few moments, inshallah. So we spoke about the defamatory cartoons. We know this has been happening for decades now. We had the magazine uh, in, in France, the uh, Charlie Hebdo. You had the Danish cartoons. I mean, if, you know, if you haven't been living under a rock, you know that, you know, for the past at least 20 years or so, there have been these denigrate these cartoons that attempt to denigrate and to defame the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the argument of some liberals are or well, many liberals and secularists is that look we have to allow this type of de de defamation and de de degradation and we have to allow gratuitous insult because it's about preserving the right to express oneself including the liberty of thought so this is the main kind of strategy that they have they say look it's a right it is a right. We have the right to degrade and to defame and to engage in gratuitous insult. It is a right that we have. So the so first is the, thing is the, is the, so basically here in this case, it's it's good sometimes just to use you know Arabic Islamic terminology, uh, but and then switch back to English. So is the right to express oneself. That you bolded here is this the maqsad is this the objective or is this the wasila to the maqsad or is this a means to the maqsad so you know what is the ultimate yeah. objective here you should just be able to express yourself because that is your uh, sacred right as a human being or is it not the ultimate goal but rather a means to an ultimate goal or does it depend who you're speaking to in general, both, but in the context of this particular side, this is about the right itself. That there is inherent inherent right. There is a conception of rights here. Yeah, so they believe it's a human right to be able to express yourself, and that includes defamation, degradation, and gratuitous insult within the framework of the law. So they say this is a right. But at the same time, and we're going to discuss this in a few moments when we talk about the objectives of freedom of speech, they argue that, well, in actual fact degrading and defamation and being and having gratuitous insult is necessary in order to achieve the objectives of freedom of speech so that this both but in the context of i'm taking this systematically in the mm. context of this particular uh, slide or stage of our presentation it's about the idea that look forget about objectives of freedom of speech forget about whether these things are a means to achieve those objectives it's a right in of itself yeah mm. That's what we want to deal with. So if it's a right, then you have, well, there, there is a particular philosophical assumption that you're adopting, right? How do you ground that right, right? How do you make sense of that right? How do you philosophize or justify that right? Because you could take it from three perspectives that you think it's a natural right. So this right is kind of universal and independent of a, 
of of any government or social consensus. It's mind independent, if you like, just like objective moral values. But from the rights point of view, that this is a right that we have, irrespective of what governments say, irrespective of what any individual says, and it's mind independent, right? We had these are rights, yeah. The, is this kind of some kind of like deontological slash Kantian yes. uh, inherent right? It's in, this is an inherent moral good. We're not looking at the consequences of this good at this stage, but in and of itself, this is a uh, this is a good moral right that human beings are entitled to. Exactly. So it's a bit rigid and firm in yes. terms of its assertion uh, of this being a right. Yeah. So if there was a kind of consensus that went against this right, a, a social consensus, it, it still should be rejected because it transcends social consensus. Mm -hmm. And also, if you just try to, you know, this, the, the idea that this right is 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 true and this right transcends social consensus, independent to your opinion. Right. Mm -hmm. It's mind independent, right? That's that's the argument here, and that's what gives it kind of objective feel and an objective um, uh, nature because it's yeah. independent to the individual human mind, the individual psyche, and a collective a collective uh, consensus. That's that's how strong this right is. Yeah. So there's a there's a kind of deontological understanding here. Then you yeah, have it's, yeah, it's so sacred it cannot even be voted out democratically. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, social utility, you know, this is also a kind of kind of consequentialist understanding or utilitarian understanding that freedom to insult, freedom, uh, freedom of speech, freedom to degrade, freedom to insult increases the collective well-being of the majority. Right. It increases. It's the greatest number of ha the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, which is a utilitarian ethic. Yeah. Or at least it minimizes or reduces suffering by facilitating truth, accountability, and progress, right? Now, fair enough, but there is a there's there's a falsity in the argument here, which we're going to discuss yeah. in a few moments, that you're assuming that freedom to insult and freedom to harm the dignity of others actually does increase the well-being uh, of others. It does increase happiness for the greatest number of people. But that's not actually true because even just intuitive, you understand that degrading others and harming the dignity of others, it raptures social bonds. It, it, it basically decreases individual well-being and it prevents barriers to the expression and discovery of truth, which we're going to discuss. So if freedom of speech is about truth, accountability and progress, then you're falsely assuming that freedom to insult and to engage in gratuitous insult and to degrade is going to facilitate those objectives. It doesn't. There are many thought experiments conceptually and in real life that you can show that in actual fact, insulting and harming the dignity of others and being gratuitous in your insults is contrary to the objectives of freedom of speech, which include truth, accountability, and progress. And we're going to discuss that later. I mean, uh, another point to add here is that, um, you know, we also need to probe what it means, to, you know, what, what, what well-being here actually means, because some people may, uh, now someone may, may counter and say, well, you know, imagine a country where 98% um, of people are racist and they love and enjoy and are thrilled about the fact that they could denigrate and insult the, the minority 2%. But at the end of the day, merely uh, being happy, being happy, uh, so to speak, 
uh, is not necessarily a, a good thing, right? And, and I think, you know, the bulk of philosophers today, um, you know, do recognize that this is an inherent flaw in hedonism, right? You know, where he, hedonism is all about just pursuing pleasure, pursuing happiness, you know, at all costs. And, you know, and the bulk of thinkers and intelligent thinkers today recognize that, yeah, that's not actually accurate. You know, uh, you, you would have to justify, uh, you know, you, you, it's important to demonstrate that your happiness is being tied to something inherently worthy or something moral. And you can't just, you know, we, we, we can't, we won't say, you know, as long as, as a sadist is getting happy out of his sadism, that doesn't mean that, okay, at least he's being happy. So even if we grant for the sake of argument that this does increase collective well-being in a certain region or certain country or whatnot, that still doesn't make it okay. Um, so that's something sure. to also, just for the sake of argument, even if we just grant that, that this could even be the case. And, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say too much. I'm sure you'll comment on it later, but, you know, equating it with facilitating truth. Right. Uh, you know, but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll that you, we're going to do with I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Yeah, that that is a, a very weak position. Um, so just to conclude this slide, the other kind of understanding to turn ground this understanding that, you know, freedom to freedom of speech, freedom to express, freedom to insult, to degrade um, th this right itself. They, some people try and ground it in a kind of eudaimonic uh, perspective which really links to the kind of Aristotelian virtue ethics that you have these virtues and being virtuous is good for your eudaimonia, your happiness, your individual happiness and well-being. Now, some people may think here, well, isn't this like similar to ethical egoism as well? Because ethical egoism is a form of consequentialism, but it's about not the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, but it's about you as an individual, your own happiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, maybe there is an argument there, but we don't have to unpack that philosophically. But the point here is, if you consider the uh, expressing yourself as a virtue and and which is a bit kind of uh, counterintuitive, but, you know, freedom to express yourself in any way, including insulting and degrading is, is a virtue. And expressing this virtue would lead to your eudaimonia, your own happiness, yeah. which is ridiculous uh, because it's hu human nature is, and I don't think anyone's going to disagree with this, they want respect and dignity. Human beings, they have an affinity for civility. They have an affinity for respect. They have an affinity for good character. They have affinity to being sensitive to one another, to want understanding and to understand and to be understood uh, and so on and so forth. These are This is part of what it means to be human. And so for you even trying to ground it in a kind of eudaimonic sense that, you know, it's virtuous to express yourself in any way, even to degrade. And that's going to lead to your individual well-being and happiness. That's a to total nonsense, right? right? That's a good point that you made because, you know, precisely what you just said right now, you yourself could turn the tables on them and appeal to natural rights and say, why isn't it a natural right that every person is dignified, every person's understood, that every person is respected, everyone's you know, every person is spoken to in uh, with civility, uh, unless you know uh, there's a clear-cut justification as to why he's he's not entitled to that. You know, you could just flip the, you know, turn it against them and say, you know, look, uh, I, you want to talk about natural rights here? Uh, you want to talk about Kantian rights here? Right? Uh, you know, fine. Uh, but there are other principles here that we think are more worthy of being, you know, uh, considered a natural right, which contradict what what it is you're trying to say here. So. It's, yes. At the end of the day, in reality, when you probe them enough, 
it's clear that there's a level of arbitrariness and you know capricious selectivity well, going on. Yeah, I mean, this is the so let's let's critique these three very quickly. So the whole thing about the natural rights. Well, okay. Now, rights don't exist in a vacuum, right? There is a competition of rights, right? Exactly. So, based on what criteria are you? What criteria are you going to use to prioritize the rights or to reconcile? Because don't we have a right to have the right to be to have dignity, to preserve our dignity, right, and to be respected? Isn't that a right as well, to a certain degree? Okay. So, if there's a clash between freedom of expression to and and which includes freedom to gratuitous in, gratuitously insult. And and we have a, now a right to um, be dignified, to have dignity. Then there, there's going to be a clash. Yeah. So, what is your frame of reference to exactly. reconcile them or to take one over the other? You're just going to make this up. And we have divine guidance. So, alhamdulillah, and it served us well and humanity well, right? But how are you solving this issue? Uh, even when it comes to yeah, sorry, even when it comes to social utility, I mean, you know, uh, uh, consequentialists or, or utilitarians, you know, they, they count the utility in different ways. They, they could either look at it in terms of quantity, so in terms of how many people are being uh, satisfied compared to those that are not being satisfied, and they can look at it as a measure of intensity. So if de de insulting and, and denigrating people, let's say it impacts 10% of the population, and it makes 90% of the population two degrees happier, but it makes 20% of the population 15 degrees more depressed, more, uh, you know, more prone to hatred, more prone to feeling oppressed. Well, in terms of utility, even, uh, you could say that the, 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 the amount of negative utility to the 20% outweighs the smaller positive utility to the 80%. And so one could even say, even in that, from that angle, it's not even clear that you have an argument here. Yeah, yeah, it's, sure. it's just, it's just very, it's all, it's all weak. It's just pretty weak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And before we get to the social utility, the whole point of natural rights as well is if they think they're mind independent and the human consensus independent, they transcend human consensus then this is this is this is this is ontology now you have certain mm -hmm. you, you need to ground this right into something in something to make sense of it you know because at the end of the day if you believe this right is objective in this sense it's mind independent and it has that objective nature okay so how do you explain its nature how do you explain that it's mind independent from a secular perspective how on earth are you going to do that it is only going to make sense in a non-naturalistic philosophy, meaning a, a kind of philosophy that you believe in the divine, right? Because, and we don't have to go into that topic now, but the whole understanding of the divine and divine commands can ground these objective moral truths and values, these objective rights in a way that is coherent. But under a secular ontology, you know, where do you where do you find this right in in you know especially if you're a philosophical naturalist right and I'm not saying all secularists are philosophical naturalists but many of them are if you believe that everything could be reduced to physical processes or physical stuff then I want to know where you find the right in the electron or if you put a bunch of electrons together you're going to get this human right how do you derive this value from uh, seemingly cold blind non intentional physical forces where are you getting this right from right Absolutely. so. 
not this whole understanding that it's your right and it's mind independent and it transcends human subjectivity and human uh, consensus. Well, how are you grounding that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I mean, even if uh, you know, uh, out of if there was some, you know, just by sheer miracle, they were able to philosophically demonstrate that there is this non-agent platonic standard in which they could root their objective morality in, they would, the, uh, they, the, the, you know, still that, that platonic standard would still not be able to issue commands. And without the issuance of commands, as, you know, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and many other uh, yes. Islamic theologians uh, have argued, without the issuance of commands, there are no moral duties. If there are no moral duties, uh, you know, there is no moral uh, necessity uh, there, I mean, there's basically no crime and punishment here involved, which is why Ibn Taymiyyah uh, believed that, uh, you know, even though there could be, uh, there could be an inherent, uh, you know, right and wrong, he still believed that without people receiving the message, you know, they will not be held accountable for abandoning that right, that objective right and wrong, because the moral commands were not issued to them, per se, because they didn't receive the message. And Perfect. So, Perfect. So, so even if, even yeah. if these people, and I know some philosophers have, uh, I forgot, was his name Eric Willenberg? I'm not sure. I know William and Craig debated him, but he tried to argue for this naturalistic platonic um, uh, standard for, for rooting objective morality in, but he, he, he couldn't go far, farther than that in terms of how this platonic standard without a mind, without agency, could even issue moral commands. Yeah, I agree. And, that, and that's why the yeah, so the moral realists, right? So say you're you're uh, you're a secular moral realist that you believe this right or this this these moral truths and values, they they're just objective. They they are yeah. just the mind and then and they transcend human subjectivity. They just are. I'm sorry, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna allow that to happen. I'm sorry, because you need to be consistent because we could just say Islam just is the truth. And the Prophet is just the final messenger and the Quran is just the final revelation and it's true. And it just is. Yeah, so it's good enough for us. Exactly. But the other thing is, and that's the inconsistency here. You're right about the, the about moral duties because duties are owed. But to whom? Who? Under a secular ontology or a secular philosophy, who are you owing these duties to? <laughs> You, you, you're responding to a moral command And you're right Ibn Taymiyyah May Allah have mercy on him You know There needs to be a An agency That issues these commands Or says that These are the rights And you need to fulfill These rights yeah. So how are you responding To that under a secular paradigm So what happens is You're removing The moral meaning Of moral truths and values Or you're removing The rightness of rights <laughs> Right Absolutely Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's just It's just a total joke so yeah. moving to social utility, I think we've already dealt with it. Uh, you articulated it very well as well from the point of view as well. How do you assess what is greatest happiness for the greatest number of people? What is your utilitarian calculus? Yeah, what are your criteria? The other thing is you're falsely assuming that freedom to insult and to degrade necessarily, and I'm using this word philosophically, necessarily leads to the objectives of freedom of speech. In actual fact, that is so not true practically conceptually and functionally it's not true because there are many cases where you are 
you, you, you are gratuitous in your insult, and it goes against the very objectives of freedom of speech, such as truth, accountability, and progress. And also, like this, is such, this is such a universal, obvious truth that everyone knows. Like everyone knows that if you speak to someone the wrong way, or you have a bad approach with someone, or you're insulting someone, that you're not going to convince them. You're not going to soften up to be receptive to what it is you're trying to convince him uh, of. So I find this to be very disingenuous. I find it hard. Well, to Jordan believe. Peterson, I think, advocates that type of freedom of speech, which I think is not very nuanced enough. Although I, I do agree with his position when he says, well, you know, you have to risk insulting and risk being insulted when you're engaging in a discourse. But he stops there. And I think that's a very uncivilized way of being yeah with all due respect to him yeah, yeah. the reasons uncivilized is because fine there are going to be gray areas and we're going to discuss the gray areas but if you have the premise or the starting point of i intend to be civil and i intend to fulfill the objectives of freedom of speech then you can navigate the space in, in a far more civilized and appropriate manner which we'll discuss later but just to end on this slide the eudaimonia, this is about individual happiness, you know, uh, freedom of expression, and, and that includes freedom to insult, is, is a virtue, right, in, to some degree. And yeah. this is going to help you to have individual happiness or individual well-being. Again, this is totally false. This is not going to improve your eudaimonia. In, in actual fact, it's against human nature um, because people don't want to be insulted. They want respect. They want dignity. They want civility. It's actually the mark of a civilized world. To actually uh, want to take, uh, want to be respectful and to dignify people, right? Uh, this is a mark of civilization. And many of these kind of liberals and secularists, with all due respect, they just want to be uncivilized when it comes to religion and when it comes to, you know, um, sacred symbols. They just want to be totally barbaric and uncivilized. But when it comes to their sacred symbols, now the yeah. yeah, look at France. Like, honestly, it's like if there was anything such as a politi political contradiction, political ideological hypocrisy, it, you know, it, it, it is definitely the ideologues, the secular ideologues in France, right? You know, if you say anything about the tricolor the flag, you could be imprisoned, man, yeah, for, yeah. For, for a flag with some colors, right? The kind of meaning and they've, they've given it, see, they've given it a sacred value, right? So anyway, we could discuss that in a few moments, but it just really <laughs> pieces me off what happens in France. The secularists, there. they're the most irrational, pseudo-intellectual people. Honestly, I would, I would, I would like, you know, I would pray two rakah out of shukr if I had the ability just to engage with them in a public discourse and a debate. Yeah, just the ability to do that because, you know, they get away with murder, honestly, intellectual murder. <laughs> they're immoral as well they're vile vile creatures some of them honestly oh. Oh. anyway sorry for expressing oh. <laughs> but you know it has to be said yeah I mean fine could be philosophical and intellectual but we have you a are mind. free you are free to express that <laughs> so, I didn't mention any names. I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm not going to curb your right. I'm not going to curb your right on blogging theology. So you, you I'm, not, I'm not removing the dignity of particular individuals. So I didn't mention any. <laughs> <laughs> so let's now go into the kind of um, main aspect of the argument. So the first thing, which we don't even need to philosophically justify, but let's just talk about it anyway. When it comes to freedom of speech, there is no such thing as absolute freedom of speech. There is not one society on this planet, not one, that has unrestricted freedom of speech. Every society has limitations and restrictions of speech, and these include legal 
in law. They include even just practically and, and you know the decorum, the social etiquettes, and the the urf, the the was uh, urf in English again. Uh, custom. Yes, the custom, the social customs, whether it's social custom, the urf, and whether it's uh, in law, there are restrictions to freedom of speech. And the reason there's rest- restrictions to freedom of speech, because there's a philosophical understanding here, that is because there are other values in place. There are, There's a competition of other values. And the academic David Van Mill, he highlights this point really well. He says the first thing to know in any sensible discussion of freedom of speech is that it would have to be limited. Every society places some limits on the exercise of freedom of, of speech because it always takes place within a context of competing values. Yes. And this is very critical for the audiences to understand whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim. You cannot argue that freedom of speech is absolute. Freedom of speech is not restricted. There are restrictions in law and otherwise. And the reason these restrictions are in place is because of a competition of other values. We we, we value other things, by the way. Yeah, if, if people don't realize that, we do. As human beings, whether you're Muslim, non-Muslim, religious or irreligious, secular or not, we value things more than just freedom of speech. Yeah, And therefore, there's going to be a competition of these values. And here are some examples in law and society, just to highlight the point, if you needed evidence, to highlight the point that there are restrictions to freedom of speech. For example, Article 53351 of the French Criminal Code punishes outrage. In other words, grave insult of the national anthem or the tricolor flag. (laughs) Okay, I don't need to do any commentary on that one. (laughs) Um, you, You also have... Wallahi, these people are like, uh, honestly, they're just immoral, some of them, right? You know, the way they would like be willing to degrade Habibullah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which which really, I want to I make this point here. You know, when these so-called secularists and people who want progress and freedom and civilization and material progress and science, and these people are self-defeating. They're shooting themselves in the foot. Why? Because... Their attack against the Prophet really, their attack against the Prophet is really an attack on themselves. Why am I saying this? Because the reason you allow to use the algorithm on your computer to degrade the Prophet on Twitter or to draw things on your computer and to publish them on a magazine, the, the ability to do that was because of the Prophet And let me tell you why. The Prophet came down with the Sharia, with Islamic law. And Islamic law is on an individual, spiritual, and political uh, the, uh, political domains. It's for all domains of life. And that was implemented around the world when Islam was spreading. All the way, you know, 80 years after the death of the Prophet Salam, we were in Multan, Pakistan, we're in Spain. And when you look at Spain, these laws were implemented to a certain degree. And it created the convivencia, the coexistence. The academics called it paradise on earth. You had Jews, Christians, and Muslims looking into the interconnecting principles of nature. They wrote on astronomy and poetry and literature and sciences and mathematics and so on and so forth. And this type of environment facilitated the likes of Muslims who actually produced the algorithm. And you use the algorithm for your computers and for you to draw things on a computer and for Twitter. 
And you use that very same algorithm to degrade the Prophet But the very fact that you can use it can be traced back to Islamic values because those values, social political values were implemented in order to allow those people to express themselves intellectually and otherwise in order for the algorithm to Meaningful be discovered, ways. if you like, and to be used. So these people, you know, uh, when they when they point the finger, three fingers are pointing back and it's a very self-defeating attitude. They should have more respect than adab, you know. And when they try to defame the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Because the very methods that they're using Is because of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam You could trace it back to him So, point is uh, You had political cartoonist Maurice Sine He worked for the French satirical magazine Lo and behold, uh, Charlie Hebdo And he was uh, working for them for 20 years And he was fired in 2009 For his cartoons mocking the French The relationship of the former French president Sarkozy's son With a wealthy Jewish woman Was it anti-Semitism as a charge? Or? I'm not sure what the deals of the charge are But the point here is There was a restriction to his uh, freedom Right? There was a restriction. He can't work for Charlie Hebdo anymore. Although Charlie Hebdo were bastions of freedom of speech. They're willing to draw cartoons of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and so on and so forth. But if they were mocking the relationship of President Sarkozy and a wealthy Jewish woman, oh, that's their red line now, right? So they yeah. even they have red lines, right? Which are ideologically and maybe economically motivated. But the point is, even with, you know, Practically from a kind of a social perspective And this is not necessarily legal But it's from a kind of orf or custom Or social perspective They know they have their red lines too Their red lines contradict For sure, they may not make sense But they have red lines Also from a legal perspective There was a French court injunction It banned a Jesus-based clothing advert Mimicking Da Vinci's Last Supper And the French judge, you know what he said? It was a gratuitous and aggressive act of intrusion or peop of on people's innermost beliefs. Isn't that amazing? So when it comes to and we support this, by the way, because Muslims yeah. should be defenders of Isa alayhi salam. We should be defenders of Jesus of all the prophets, because unfortunately the Christians are not doing it uh, in today's yeah. day and age. So we have to defend. You know, the Abrahamic prophets This is part of our legacy as, as Muslims, as believers, as submitters to God As submitters to, you know, the God of Abraham, right? We need to also defend the honor and the dignity of all prophets Including Jesus, upon whom be peace And so we're not disagreeing with this But we're saying, well, there's a contradiction If the judge could rule that you, you can't you know, do uh, have a piece of clothing that's that's basically degrading the uh, uh, Prophet Jesus upon uh, be peace. Now, what about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Be consistent, right? Because as the judge said, it was a gratuitous and aggressive act of intrusion on people's innermost beliefs. In two thousand and five, the Danish newspaper Jinnah's Posten they published caricatures of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but rejected the publications of cartoons mocking Jesus. Because they said it would provoke an uproar. So, again, a contradiction. Again, this exposes this inconsistency. But, yeah, but th th this is an ideological position. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I were to play devil's advocate, I would. Um, one could argue that the Danish excuse here is utilitarian in nature, and utilitarian. Uh, the, the problem with consequentialist theories of morality. I mean, outright consequentialist theories of morality that are not really rooted properly or directed properly is that it's open to ishtihad each time, right? Yes. But the former, the, 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 the remark that you quoted from the French judge, that seems like a deontological or Kantian or fixed 
principle that he's adhering to, that should apply across the board, right? So it, it's like yeah. a, a stronger argument could be made here against the French. Well, the Danish newspaper might say, well, you know, there's more Christians here in Denmark, and so they outnumber the Muslims by, I don't know, uh, uh, I don't know how much, but it would have really uh, caused us serious problems. So they would look at it from... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know and we can that. counter back. I'm not saying yeah, it's like... Okay, yeah. it's probably, I mean, look, but the point I'm mentioning... I'm devil's advocate. <laughs> so I'm not mentioning these things to, to try and, and uh, philosophize their moral position. It's just to show that they have red lines. Even if they're contradictory, they may not be justified, but there are restrictions in law and in society. There is a... Uh, the restrictions within social custom and within the legal framework of a particular uh, nation or country. Yeah? So that's the point of mentioning these things. But yeah. just to maybe add what you're, to what you're saying, secular morality is not just based on utilitarianism, right? I don't think there's any nation or any group of people that are just purely utilitarian. That's a kind mm -hmm. of unnuanced understanding of morals. Even if you're a virtue ethicist, there's going to be some things where you're going to uh, refer to utilitarian paradigm or to a deont deontological paradigm. Just like in secular, you know, in secular life, people are not just purely consequentialist or utilitarian, but rather they also deontological to a certain degree. So I would say, well, okay. I mean, the, the very claim, the very claim, we must increase utility is a deontological. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Right, right. So, so like you said, yeah. But the point here is they would, they would also maybe agree as secular liberals that we have to, you know, protect minorities and to ensure the dignity of our minorities, right? Which would be a not necessarily utilitarian issue. It might be a deontological issue. So that's a, as a moral principle, we're like, we need to dignify uh, our minorities, which also mm. includes dignifying uh, the, their symbols, yeah? Which includes the, the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So one would argue that, fine, we don't have to go down a utilitarian route, but what about the principles that you already advocate, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, that's that's an interesting point. So, I, I mean, you know, Sakala, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, whenever you debate something, there's always going to be gray areas. But at the same time, you know, you don't want to commit, you know, uh, what is known in the literature as, uh, you know, as a... Uh, a continuum fallacy, a logical fallacy. You know, a continuum fallacy is a mode of fallacy where, you know, you're ignoring the clear cases just because there exist gray areas. So, yes. for example, there, there's the, bo the the bald man fallacy. At what point exactly does an individual become bald? Right. <laughs> okay. At how many hairs must fall off until we consider that? Okay, we could call this person bald. Well, you know, we don't know exactly at which precise point, but some, but there are clear cases where we can say that someone is bald, right? Yes. So when it comes to the restrictions of freedom of speech, there may be gray areas. There may be room for debate. And I'm, I'm trying to not even speak from an Islamic perspective here. I'm trying to put myself in their frame of mind here by saying, look, obviously the, there, there, there could be gray areas. We do want to be careful that we don't over-restrict. Okay, fine. But there are clear cases here. There yes. are clear principles here. Just as the French judge has mentioned, as you quoted him, 
Clear cases involve gratuitous and, uh, gratuitous and aggressive acts of intrusion on people's innermost beliefs. This is a clear case, right? So yes, uh, then someone can counter, okay, but how far do you want to go? Do you want to do this? I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Let's debate that in a separate setting. But yes, for now I'm talking point, about a clear yes. case. A clear case would involve outright insult and degradate and degradation of people's innermost beliefs, as this French judge has said. Yes. And, and the point so, of this slide is not to go into the nuances, it's just to show yeah. that there are restrictions in, in secular and liberal law and society. That's the point here. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why. You know, go to any country, France, England, USA, Canada, wherever you are, Australia, anywhere in the world, and you're going to find defamation laws, hate speech laws, libel laws, laws against the Holocaust in many of the countries and so on and so forth. So you're going to find laws that actually restrict speech. And some of these things were examples just to uh, show that from a legal and social perspective. Yeah. And look at the UK, where I'm from, right? My, my country, the UK Human Rights Act. This is very interesting. Look what it says in Article 10 of the Human Rights Act 1998. It says, everyone has the right to freedom of expression. And then it continues. However, may be subject to formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties are, as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society. And then the act elaborates in the interests of national security, territorial integrity, or public safety for the prevention of disorder or crime, for the protection of health or morals. Yes, ah. competition, competition of values here. For the protection of the reputation or rights of others, for prevention, the disclosure of information received in confidence, or for maintaining the authority and impartiality of the judiciary. extremely vague. This is extremely vague. It is, but here's the point. Vacuous. The point is, there are restrictions, moral yeah. restrictions, mm -hmm. uh, legal restrictions, restriction concerning reputation, restriction mm -hmm. concerning national security. Morals, safety, morals. Yeah, yeah pre preventing of disorder or crime, morals. So the point here is, I whoever says that, you know, you should be able to say whatever you want, with all due respect, this is a slogan. This is not nuanced. It's not justified. It's irrational. And really, it's saying something else. It's an expression or it's it's, a, it's veiling something else that's going inside. Like you don't really want the dialogue and discussion. You, you already think you're right. You're an ideologue. You don't like the other position. You're not willing to understand. And what we've said thus far actually um, uh, brings that to light. You know, we shouldn't be throwing around these slogans when we're having these discussions. Now, even when someone says, but no, 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 we should have no restrictions. And there are some people who are absolutists, yes, some. They're very rare and they're not very nuanced or philosophically grounded, but they have an argument and they say, look, it's the slippery slope argument. If you have any form of restrictions to freedom of speech, it can lead to tyranny, right? But hold on a second. The door swings both ways. Mm -hmm. Not having any restrictions at all can lead to anarchy. <laughs> and if you have anarchy, then the objectives of freedom of speech are never met, which include truth, accountability, human flourishing, and progress, as John Stuart Mill said concerning human flourishing. So it doesn't, and it doesn't logically follow necessarily that if you have restrictions, it's going to lead to censorship or tyranny or it's going to lead to the non-fulfillment of the objectives of freedom of speech. It doesn't necessarily follow. As we said, but, the devil's in the details. And yeah, also, the door swings, yeah. swings both ways. 
if you if you don't allow any restrictions of uh, to speech from a legal social moral perspective then that could lead according to your own argument to anarchy and if it leads to anarchy then there's no point of expressing yourself in the first place right i i, I mean I, I, you know you could even argue back uh hamza but by saying that absolute uh, you know, non-restriction of freedom of speech could also lead to tyranny because there is this concept in, you know, uh, we study in the philosophical literature, uh, you know, the, the tyranny of the majority. So if you do have a minority group living in a country and the majority are not restricted from, you know, oppressing them verbally and inciting against them, that is tyranny against them as well, right? I mean, speech could be used for tyrannical purposes as well. Right? Very and uh, when you're when you're inciting in here, inciting hatred against a group, and when you're uh, spewing, you know, uh, a lot of hurtful words and increasing hurtful, you know, yes. uh, antagonistic sentiments against them, this is tyrannical. This is oppression. And there the should be a law that it. prevents that from occurring. Yep. And the liberals would say this is like you know the typical argument from John Stuart Mill, the harm principle. So, you know, if you and he gave an example about uh, corn traders, I think we're going to refer to it in a few moments that if you're outside, you know, his his house and, you know, you're asking for his death or inciting hatred against him, then that should be prevented because that's going to instigate people to basically go and harm the corn trader. Do you see my point? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. So. Um, for sure, in actual fact, that was a good argument that, that actually not having restriction can actually lead to tyranny for sure. Um, because of the, the, the mob rules, right? I, I mean, so, this is not, I, I mean, again, this is kind of like the pacifism of freedom of speech. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I those mean, those are completely I, against war in all cases, completely against lying in all cases. You know, I'd rather tell the truth than lie. Uh, uh, and protect protect that family of life from getting killed. Like, how many absolute moral absolutists re are there really? I mean, this is not really. A yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, look. At the end of the day, um, one would argue so far the discussion has been quite intuitive and rational. So why we why do you feel the need to even say these things, Hamza? Uh, well, you'd be surprised when it comes to these ideological discussion. People bring up these arguments, these false arguments, and it's important just to systematically go through them. Um, in order for us to have a robust presentation. So in the context of the slippery slope that we just mentioned, David Van Mill, the academic, he says, those who support the slippery slope argument tend to make the claim that the inevitable consequence of limiting speech is a slide into censorship and tyranny. It is worth noting, however, that the slippery slope argument can be used to make the opposite point. One could argue that we should not allow any removal of government interventions on speech or any other type of freedom, because once we do so, and once we do, we're on, a, on the slippery slope to anarchy. It is possible that some limits on speech might over time lead to further instructions, but they may not. And if they do, those limitations might also be justified. The main point is that once we abandon the incoherent position that there should be no limits on speech, we have to make controversial decisions about what can and cannot be expressed. This comes along with the territory of living together in communities. So... We now know, I think it's healthy to say, we're justified to say that no one can say that they're an absolutist. It's just irrational. It doesn't make sense. Practically, politically, legally, and otherwise, without our competition of values, you know, 
is the, we don't only believe in one value, which is the liberty to express oneself. There are other values and there are competition of values. And as a result, in living in a community, you have to have legal restrictions of speech, social restrictions, and so on and so forth. And these connect to uh, public order, preventing disorder, linked to crime, linked to you know business, linked to uh, morality, and so on and so, so on and so forth, and the well-being of the collective. Now, interestingly, now we can move on now to the objectives of freedom of speech because there is not uh, there's not many philosophers worth their salt, right? That would argue that freedom of speech is an ends. No one would argue that. No one really argues a kind of you know, perspective that freedom of speech is an ends. Yeah. They say it's a means. So it's instrumental, right? It doesn't have intrinsic value per se. It's an instrument. It's a, it's a means to particular ends. And what are these ends? You could summarize them as progress, truth, and accountability. And the British philosopher, John Street Mill, he mentioned something very similar. He basically said that freedom of speech fosters authenticity genius or progress, creativity, individuality, and human flourishing. But I like to put it into the categories of progress, which is like material, scientific progress, uh, intellectual progress, truth, and accountability. These are important areas. You can add more if you want, but the point here is there are objectives to freedom of speech, right? We express ourselves for a particular reason. Obviously, practically, is to communicate with people, to live a functioning life, but generally speaking, from a from a societal perspective, in terms of you know where we're going as a human collective, it's about progress, truth, and accountability. Yeah. Even so, Islamically, uh, I mean, just uh, obviously one could debate the contents of these terms, but I think in terms of the terms being used here, I think we're we're on board, right? Because I mean, truth and accountability, truth, you know, uh, pursuing the correct. A uh, uh, path of salvation, accountability, enjoining the good, forbidding the vice, etc. So, yes, so I would say that's my, very far off, but I'll the contents could be debated. Yeah. I'll take my jacket off; it's heating up a bit. So, I'm going to roll the sleeves up as well, just to get into the discussion now, right? So, uh, something heated is coming uh, coming our way. <laughs> so, I, we're gonna I'm going to link progress, truth, and accountability towards the end when we talk about Islamic values, because yes. We agree with these terms in abstraction, but again, the devil's in the details. Like we believe in, in rahma, in compassion. We believe in justice for sure. But what conception of justice? What does compassion mean? Yeah, the particulars. So that's always going to happen. But I think for the purpose of our discussion so far, there's not much disagreement here. Freedom of expression, to express yourself has a particular goal. And from a social perspective, from a human flourishing perspective, it's progress, truth, and accountability. Now, the liberals and secularists, when they fight against the Muslims intellectually on this issue and say, no, we should have cartoons against the Prophet ﷺ. We should degrade the prophets. We should degrade what you consider to be, to be, to be sacred. We're like, whoa, 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 why? Because it, we need it. It's necessary in order to achieve science and progress and truth and to account and to hold people to account. Hold one second. This is not a rational argument. Unless you can demonstrate a necessary link between freedom to insult and degrade and gratuitous insult and the achievements of the objective of, of freedom of speech, which include truth, accountability, human flourishing and progress. 
there's no necessary link with all due respect. Mm. And it could be demonstrated conceptually and practically yeah? that to think that we can be demonstrated that uh, your freedom to gratuitously to, to express gratuitous insults and to degrade that actually goes against the objectives of freedom of speech. So here's like a quick summary argument. Number one, to convince someone of and to promote the truth in many circumstances requires good argumentation, persuasion, and civility. Number two, insults in many contexts are a barrier to good argumentation, persuasion, and civility. Conclusion number three, therefore insults in many cases prevent truth. Conclusion uh, the second conclusion, number four, therefore, the objectives of freedom of speech is undermined or an objective of freedom of speech is undermined. No one's going to disagree with this logic. Yeah. So let's just unpack that a little bit more. Let's give you some thought experiments. So the late scientist Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Imagine he wanted to present his theory of everything or a, a string theory or a new theory. And uh, 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 one of his new theories, I, I'm not very uh, in tune with with some of his ideas, but say, you know, um, I don't know, what was one of his A theories? new cosmological theory of it. Yeah, say <laughs> Stephen Hawking's cosmological theory, okay? And he started uh, presenting to a bunch of academics and thinkers and teachers and experts. He started by spending half an hour insulting them, insulting their mothers, insulting their beliefs, insulting their, 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 their race, insult, insulting their, their spouses, insulting their children. And then he started with his, you know, uh, cosmological theory. Now, with all due respect, is that going to facilitate the objectives of the presentation, the objectives of him expressing himself, which is, you know, his perceived truth of his cosmological theory? Or is it going to go against it? Is it going to become, or is, or is his approach going to be a barrier to that? Well, it's quite, it's it's easy to, to conclude gratuitously, gratuitously insulting them is going to be a barrier to the, to the objective of freedom of speech here. And in this context is the truth of his theory. Likewise, what about accounting the Chinese government, holding them to account for the oppression of the Uyghurs, right? You know, imagine you're an ambassador of a particular state and you go to the Chinese ambassador. And before you talk about the oppression and the subjugation of the Uyghurs, you start insulting Chinese language, Chinese culture, Chinese history, Chinese philosophy, Chinese poetry, Chinese pottery, uh, Chinese whatever, right? How on earth are you going to, actually fulfill the objective of your expression or the uh, the reason you're there or the the objective of freedom of expression in this case holding powers to account how is that going to facilitate that it's going to become a barrier to gratuitously insult and to degrade will become a barrier to holding the chinese government to account also and we need to be very careful here when we look at studies concerning othering and dehumanization, which is a relatively new area of study, like Dr. Uthman Latif, who is a postdoctoral researcher, he did a PhD in, in Crusader studies, but he did postdoc work in othering and dehumanization. He's been published by Brill and Springer. And this area domain of work is quite fascinating because they're, they're unraveling a link between gratuitous insult and genocide. This is a serious matter, by the way. This is not a joke, especially when powerful structures in, in a particular society use the freedom or the liberty to gratuitously insult. Yeah, what happens over time is that it could lead to othering, dehumanization, which therefore leads to 
genocide. We saw, the, saw this with Nazi Germany. Look at the way the Nazi propaganda was was expressed by the newspapers and the radio and so on and so forth concerning the Jewish minority. It was degrading. It was full of insults. It was racist. It was vile. And over time, in in the collective conscious, or at least a significant uh, population of the German society, they started to dehumanize the Jewish minority. And they, it was, they, it was, they, there was a form of othering here that there is a group, that group is a Jew, the Jews, and they are a monolith and they're all evil, right? So there was an othering and dehumanization, right? Which is against the Quranic discourse, of course, because Allah says in Surah Al Imran, people are not the same. People are not the same, right? So, yes, we have groups of people that are important to make distinctions, moral distinctions. But when it comes to individuals, you can't otherize them and dehumanize them and say they're all the same. Yeah. Um, so and that's an interesting Islamic nuance that we could talk about another time. And maybe you could have Dr. Smile Latif on. He's far more qualified than me to talk about these things. Anyway, so that's what happened in Nazi Germany. And and the, and this this happened in Bosnia. This happened in Rwanda. Right. Rwanda was through radio. Right. You had husband and wife come from different tribes, basically hacking each other, killing each other just because of this. You know, if you want to apply the liberal notion of freedom to insult and degrade, that's what they were doing. Fine, it wasn't nice, it was immoral, but, you know, it wasn't in the freedom to express themselves in that way. We need to be very careful because when this is misused by powerful structures in society and it's done in a way that other right, that, that creates a form of othering and dehumanizes a group of people, it can lead to violence and it could lead to genocide. Uh, and this per is established in the literature. Yeah, per persecution doesn't arise out of a vacuum. It's always preceded by uh, misuse of speech, hateful speech in that manner. And uh, Dr. Usman Latif, his book on being human, which can be found on the Sapiens Institute website, it's uh, how Islam addresses othering, dehumanization and empathy. And there's a quote from him here, from him here. He says, by stigmatizing people, they come to emerge as society's others, barbarians, those on the margins of humanity. Between them and the dominance, there exists a supposed marginality. This allows the opposition between the self and other to be aggravated. These distant others are restricted, not so much in frames of landscaping, but in other codes of behaviorism by which the physical, physically distant cannot be rendered close, culturally or otherwise. Between them and the dominance, there exists a supposed marginality. Dehumanization is a blurring of distinctions, a rendering of others as faceless and unlike ourselves. We, us, humanity, are a collective effort. We must push back against the emergence of genocidal tendencies in our world. Theodore Adorno attempted in his seminal essay, Education After Auschwitz, to stress the responsibility of education and educators to herald empathic tendencies in young people who challenge attitudes of otherness. The sequence of genocides, however, wars and mass killing, killings since Auschwitz are a testament that there is so much more for us to do. We must challenge global media narratives and representations that otherwise or exclude fellow humans from a collective state of worthiness that unleash on others, the stigma of devalued, dehumanized identities. It is upon us to play important roles in building societies that connect people, that bridge. Bridging allows to open spaces to foster understanding, communication, and an enhancing of the collective human spirit. 
Now, that was a very powerful uh, a few yeah. lines from Dr. Sman Latif. But basically, the argument here is that if you f- if you use that card and powerful structures like governments and politicians and media, and they have power, right? They use the card of freedom to insult to degrade onto minorities. And that happens over a period of time. And it's consistent in the de- degradation of the minority and their symbols, then that can create other othering. You could otherize them and it ends up dehumanizing them. And you, you, you start to paint a picture that there are an other, they're a group and they're faceless and they're a monolith and they're all evil. And that facilitates actually aggression against them. And it facilitates uh, genocide. And we saw this in Bosnia. We saw this in Rwanda. We saw this in Nazi, Nazi Germany. I mean, we need to be a little bit more responsible for God's sake. And, you know, these are serious matters, right? Um, so that, that's something that I, I, I wanted to, to mention. So echoing all of this really is really John Stuart Mill's harm principle. So he argued that speech should be restricted if it leads to harm. And yes, there's a massive discussion in secular liberal discourse on what harm actually means. And that uh, is dependent on your own philosophy, your own ontology, your own frame of reference, your own moral reference point, and so on and so forth, for sure. But as an abstract principle, it makes sense. And we've already articulated why that's the case. Now, Mill used the 19th century corn dealers, which we, we, we already mentioned. And he said that if a mob uh, if he argued that a mob, um, uh, a mob should, he argued that a mob should incur punishment if they expressed that corn dealers are starvers of the poor when assembled before the house of a corn dealer. So, you know, likewise, if you're always saying Muslims are terrorists, they're the enemy. They're, they're the enemy, right? They're terrorists. They want your blood. They're not part of this community. They're the fifth column. They're this, that, and the other, and that's repeated over time, over time, continuously in the public consciousness then this is create social disharmony and harm, right? And this is a huge problem. And this is something that, you know, people need to take, uh, be, the media especially, and those who have power need to have uh, a greater sense of moral responsibility on this issue because it can create irreversible damage, irreversible damage. And we already saw this when politicians said certain things, you had women's uh, hijabs being, being torn away from their heads in the UK, and, and so on and so forth, because, you know, unfortunately, human beings are sheep, right? You know, if you study social influence and social com- conformity, the Zimbardo study, the prison study, Milgram study, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, there are nuances to these discussions, but generally speaking, no social psychologist worth their salt is going to say that there is no um, uh, social conformity and influence going on in societies. Of course there is. And that is because of our need to belong and our need to feel certain. Yeah. And this is called informational social influence and, and normative social influence. Informational social influence is when we're uncertain about something, we look to others to get that certainty. Or we look to the dominant group. Uh, likewise, normative social influence, we have a need to belong. If we don't feel a certain belonging within our subgroup, we'll go to the dominant group and we'll, uh, you know, look for their cues. And we may even believe in what they believe in just to belong, even though rationally we may not even accept it, right? So social conformity is a thing, right? And you see this with the power of social media and we see this with the increase of, you know, teenage depression and lack of self-esteem because of Instagram and so on and so forth. You know, social conformity and influence is 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 a fact. Yes, there are nuances, there are gray areas, there are the ifs and the buts and so on and so forth, but it's a thing. 
And uh, that's why we have to be far more responsible, responsible, especially those of power who have power, the media, because it can create disharmony. Um, and this is my point here now, which is really, if you look at the kind of history of, of freedom of expression and speech, you know, wasn't it an idea that emerged to empower the weak, <laughs> to empower the individual, right? To hold to account the powers of the time. Now, Generally speaking, the Catholic Church in Europe, they censored and they prevented intellectual progress. Yes, I know there is nuanced discussion in, in the philosophy of, or in, in, in the history of science and so on and so forth. It wasn't always the case. And, you know, the Catholic tradition has been responsible for many scientific endeavors and, and the promotion of scientific inquiry, for sure. But generally speaking, if there was any ideas that were incongruous with the Catholic doctrine, they would use the coercive arm of the state. And it, it wasn't it the whole point of freedom of speech to empower that particular individual or the particular scientist or the person who had the minority view? Wasn't that the whole point of freedom of speech, right? That the weak could to hold, uh, they could hold uh, to account the, the strong and the powerful, which includes the government, the church, those who have power. So it's very, it's antithetical to the kind of foundation of freedom of speech that it's just, it's just, it's just one. It's turned one eighty now, right? It's just. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's banana justice in a way, right? It's a banana society. Now, what happens is the minority is denigrated. The minority is is told off. The minority said, "No, you're wrong." The minority is accused. The minority, the ones who don't have power, are basically attacked. And it's the irony that even governments and politicians would get involved in this discussion and they're the ones who hold the power, but yet they will be pointing the finger at the minority, which is extremely bizarre, extremely bizarre. Um, and what this also shows as well is, especially when it comes to the idea of freedom of speech, you know, freedom of speech in reality from a social, psychological, political perspective would only make sense, would only make sense or can only be... Uh, manifested in society in an equal way if everyone has equal power right but we don't have equal power so you're never going to have freedom of speech you're never going to have you're never going to have um what do you call it you're, you're never going to have the ability to express your truth or a truth or your position unless you have the same power because if you study the dynamics of society and the dynamics of political structures, those who scream the loudest and they have the biggest platform, the most money, even if their ideas are not true, they're going to influence more people. I had a discussion with a humanist um, uh, philosopher, Stephen Law, and I, I caught him on that one. It was actually uh, it, was one, it was like a happy moment. Right? I was like, yeah, got you there. Because he was a huge fan of Jeremy Corbyn. And if you know Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, he was like, you know, maybe one of the last decent politicians or principled politicians that we have. I don't agree with his politics, but he was a decent guy, right? He was your Bernie Sanders in a way? Yeah, in a way. He was like, yeah, the equivalent, uh, the Bernie Sanders equivalent, if you like. I don't know much about Bernie Sanders, but um, from what I've seen, Prima Facey, <laughs> they're quite, they seem quite similar. Um, so he was attacked though and denigrated, right? And he was a huge supporter of him. I said, see, he was accused of being a terrorist sympathizer or he, this, that, and the other. He's taking, he's going to take Britain back. He's a communist. He's this, that, and the other. And he was getting attacked and people started to believe in it. I said, see, 
this whole idea of freedom of speech doesn't make sense unless you have equal power. So do you know how I responded? Okay, we should give people equal power, <laughs> which is absurd. It's never going to happen. Right? Yeah. yeah. So um, this whole idea of, um, you know, we should all be able to be gratuitous and insult. Maybe, maybe I'll give you, I, I don't agree with you, but maybe I'll give it to you only if we all have equal power. Because if you all have equal power, then they won't the, the the harms maybe may not manifest themselves because everyone has equal power but that is a society that will never exist there is it'll no never will never actualize never never actualize it's actually in an irrational position yeah? yeah so when it comes to the muslims and we you know continuing from the harm principle we see that you know there's an imbalance here the people who have power the media the political structures they denigrate an, an already despised minority and they're trying to subjugate a despised minority. So, you know, and what they would say is, no, you know, it's just freedom of speech and, you know, you guys have to grow up and you have to secularize and liberalize yourselves, which I think is ridiculous because they don't do that with the Jewish community mm. or other communities. So this selective application of the so-called freedom of speech and their values and therefore it being a contradiction is an indication of some kind of political agenda is an indication of some kind of um ideological non-negotiable uh, assumption and i think what it is is that they basically understand that muslims cannot be secularized and liberalized because if you look at other minorities those minorities function relatively well because they can be secularized and liberalized right Generally speaking, the Muslim community, that's not our worldview. Yes, we can live in a liberal culture and a liberal society. Yes, we can live in a secular culture and society. And we can live in a way that we flourish and that we, we are fellow citizens and we're compassionate and we, we, have a, we have a moral compass and we're a beacon of light for the rest of our citizens, for sure. Absolutely. However, but we can't be secularized and liberalized versions of ourselves. And the dominant ideology, secularism or liberalism, that's what it aims to do. It can only really tolerate uh, from a practical perspective and a social perspective uh, minorities that are subjugated versions of themselves. In other words, they're secularized or liberalized versions of themselves. Um, and I think there's an appreciation that this this is this is you know one of the one of the weaknesses of liberalism because they've realized in actual fact, uh we can't be tolerant. Right. Liberalism has has a bound. They, they, there's no such thing as a boundless tolerance anyway. And they realize where their tolerance boundaries are. We're like, OK, we'll accept all minorities within the liberal framework, within uh, as long as you're liberalized versions of yourselves. But Islam, Muslims, you know, Orthodox Muslims would generally that can't happen to us. Um, and that's why I think, you know, the powers uh, like to selectively apply these values uh, it, it, to us because they want to liberalize us and they want to secularize us. But I'm sorry, we have sacred things and we're proud of that. A, a, a community or a culture or an ideology that has removed the sacred from their spaces, from the social, political, personal space is a very dangerous society. Very dangerous. Because if you remove the sacred, then, 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 then you could, you, the you got your your whole everything you deem to be valued could change within an instance.
Yeah, mm-hmm. it'll be the shifting sands or the the changing winds of society. And what was right today could be wrong tomorrow. And what was wrong tomorrow could be right today. Just like, you know, I think it was Umar ibn Khattab and when before he became Muslim, you know, he made his God out of dates. And then he got hungry, then he ate his God. Right. And that's what's happening, right? You know, if you don't have anything sacred, then mm. it's it's a path to destruction. And we see this with uh, postmodern discourse. We see this with what they're doing with regards to the fam- the family and the necessary social hierarchies that we have that have served us well as a as a human race they want to dismantle them and and blur them and to remove them because really it's uh, the only thing that has remained when you remove the sacred the only thing now that becomes sacred is your own ego yeah right? and this is like almost the nietzschean the nietzschean prophecy right <laughs> You know, when he said God is dead, he didn't believe ontologically God is dead from that yeah. perspective. He wasn't articulating that. He was basically saying God is dead in the hearts of European men, um, European men. And when God dies, and what's your basis for your values? And then he realized that then you have to be the basis for your values. You have to become God. And he also realized the potential friction with that because he realized that if everyone's a God now or the basis for their own values, then there may be a conflict. And he said, well, I have my values. Where are yours? Right. And that's why might is right from that perspective, because, right, if everyone's going to be their own God and everyone's going to have their own values, then the one who's strongest is going to win. Right. <laughs> so Dr. Shabir Akhtar, he makes a, a similar point in the Jakarta Post. He says humor and mockery are powerful class weapons, especially when used to demean the voiceless and inarticulate. The multitudes who have little or no secure alternative sources of self-respect and dignity other than their naked identity as human beings. To ridicule such people is hardly a noble ambition. Laicite is intolerant of diversity. The onus is now on policymakers. Can they, can they live up to, to the demands of their history as it has evolved to, to arrive at this fatal stalemate? Can they allow a voice for the 6 million Muslim citizens, referring to France here, more progress in cultures is not achieved through distorting the self-image of a despised minority and substituting a false and insulting revisionist account of their origins. So finally, what I would argue is that the alternative here is the importance of civility. So what, what does civility dictate? You know, the Islamic ethic of civility dictates that if you want a society that has that values truth, that values progress, that values accountability, and which is the objectives of freedom of speech, then you'll have to contextualize your speech in order for these virtues to be achieved. It's not simple as saying, you know, what Jordan Peterson says, oh, well, you know, you have to risk insulting and being insulting and being insulted. Say what you want. No, 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 no. It's more to it than that. We have objectives. Do you want truth? Do you want accountability? Do you want progress? Do you want human flourishing? Okay. So it's not always the case of just saying, look, we, okay, given the fact that there is a risk of, of insulting and a risk of being insulted, therefore we should just insult or we should just allow it. No, that's a very unnuanced and wrong way of seeing it. We should now think, okay, there's going to be gray areas, but let's now focus on what's not gray. Or let's at least intend to understand, intend to articulate for the goals to be achieved for freedom of speech would include truth, accountability, and progress. As long as you have that, then you're already uh, solving a, a massive problem, right? I mean, even so, if even so, if you, even if we grant that, uh, and which I am personally willing to grant, uh, if uh, you know, if if one says speaking the truth will inevitably offend someone else, 
make someone feel offended, that doesn't, even if we grant that, that doesn't mean that we don't strive to take all the means possible to minimize that. That's it also depends, it also depends, it also depends what you mean by offense here, right? Because why are they offended, right? Because, you know, some people feel offended for different reasons. Some people might feel offended that you are questioning the truth claim of something extremely important to them. Right. Yes. So obviously you have a pious Christian um, whose entire um, worldview uh, centers, uh, you know, uh, uh, upon Christianity. And you're as a Muslim are going to tell him in unequivocal terms, but in a manner that is wise, but yet still clear and explicit that that his worldview is wrong. Now, he may feel offended by that. He may feel disturbed by that. He, it may perturb him that you are telling him that. His entire worldview, what he's living for, his entire purpose in life is actually mistaken. But you're not intentionally making that, uh, yes. making him feel offended. It, it may be inevitable, but you're striving to take all the means possible to mitigate and minimize the level of offense so that the dialogue could continue, so that he could be receptive to your, yes. uh, to, to what you want to relay to him. Because you could also help that Christian understand that. Him believing what he believes also entails that the Muslim worldview is wrong as well. And so, you know, we don't want to stand here and just both be offended with each other. Um, yes. your, your scriptures, in I think it's in First Peter 3.15, tells you to preach to me in a wise manner. And my scripture, the Quran, tell, uh, Allah uh, uh, implores me to do the same. So, if anything, our worldviews are encouraging each other to have a more uh, have a civil and yes. calm and rational discussion. And that's what civility is. So we're not saying that no one's going to be uh, insulted, but you don't intend to insult, and you're doing your best to fulfill the objectives of you expressing yourself, which is not to insult, is to actually maybe win them over, articulate your position in the best possible manner, and so on and so forth. And that's the whole point of being civil is to try and dignify them as best as possible. This doesn't mean don't express the truth or don't express your position, of course. But there's a difference between gratuitous insult and having an intellectual tone, for example, or a compassionate tone, but yet being assertive with your truth. So I totally agree with what you're saying. It's about the intention. It's about seeking the objective. Yeah, And the objective here is, in certain contexts, especially freedom of speech, truth, accountability, and progress. Right? How am I going to achieve that? Am I going to achieve that by just being deliberately gratuitous in terms of in, in my insults and degrading them? No, I may still insult them, but I didn't intend to. And I'm using the best language possible in that particular context. And that's what civility is all about. Yeah. Let me play that's devil's advocate with you. Let me play devil's advocate with you. Yeah, of course. Um, someone comes and says, look, Hamza, uh, that's all well and nice. Uh, that may be the general rule. But sometimes, sometimes, Hamza, some ideologies, some viewpoints are so absurd and ridiculous that I would not honor them with a intellectual or rational response. There are certain stances that I believe are worthy of ridicule, and I want the people, and my intention behind this is to spread the truth. Maybe it may not be to those adherents, but to the others uh, who, you know, are on the fence about it. I want them to realize and understand that this view is so absurd 
that it is not an intellectually viable option. And the best way for me to achieve that goal is by mocking it, by ridiculing it, by undermining it. So, uh, I mean, okay, let's say flat earth theory. It, it may not be the strongest example, but for a lot of people, it's like they they would personally feel uncomfortable engaging with this viewpoint in a rational and intellectual way because they feel that it's so absurd that I don't want to give the impression that it is even worthy of such an intellectual engagement. I would rather mock it, mock its adherence, ridicule them, so that because I want other people to view this viewpoint the same way I do as totally absurd and not just merely as false. So I am ridiculing and at the same time trying to spread the truth of just how heinously wrong this viewpoint is. Um, is, that a, is that a valid perspective that could be uh, relayed? I well, hope I'm not. I'm not yeah. I hope I'm not being too strong of a devil's advocate. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you, but I would even say, therefore, you have applied our principles then, because you've considered the objectives of freedom of speech. Hmm. Remember, the argument here is not that you sh you should never ever uh, mock or degrade. I'm not saying that's the case either. The argument here is that freedom to insult or to degrade does not necessarily achieve the objectives of freedom of speech, and they don't have an intrinsic value. They're, they're a means to particular ends, and sometimes those ends could be against the objectives of freedom of speech. So you need to consider the objectives, truth, accountability, and progress. So your, your devil's advocate position here is actually has considered the objectives of freedom of speech. You've assessed what is the best way of fulfilling the objectives of freedom of speech? And if you think it's mockery, then fine, we could have that discussion in, when, uh, and, and apply it to a particular scenario. But as a general rule, mockery would only beget mockery. Yeah. So, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, you know, we can't degrade the idols of the mushrikeen because they, they would degrade, they would insult Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Are the idols worthy of degradation and insult? Of course. Uh, Allah says, only a fool will reject the way of Abraham, <laughs> right? Now, I'm not saying we have to use divine language all the time. No, we have to use the language of the Prophet ﷺ, right? Um, Allah has every right to articulate the way he wants to articulate to humanity because he is the divine authority. But the point here is, um, as a default position, mockery will beget mockery. Right, insult will beget insult. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I mean, just to respond to myself, and I and I and I and, uh, well, can I very quickly. Yeah, so, so to so therefore, I, if that's the default ethic, mockery begets mockery, and the default eth ethic is that gratuitous insult and mockery do not necessarily lead to the objectives of freedom of speech. And and if and you, if you have the objectives in mind then when you apply it to a particular scenario and you come to the realization that maybe being a bit more assertive and having some mockery is needed, then we could discuss it, but it's not the default position. So uh, your argument in a way has supported our current position because it's in the context of, well, I believe truth will be achieved if you do have mockery and if you do have insult. Okay, 
Give me the scenario. Let's assess it. Because if the default position is not to mock, because mockery begets mockery, and the default position is to consider the objective freedom of speech, that's always the position rather, and the default position is to be civil, then if you're going to change that default position, then the onus is on you to justify why you're doing it. So the devil's advocate person position would have to explain why they believe that mockery in this specific context will lead to the objectives of freedom of speech. So the onus of proof would be on them. Yeah, uh, it could also it could also be the case. It could also, I mean, just to you know, uh, also add to how how you would respond to what I just said, uh, playing devil's advocate, which is that it could very well be the case that uh, you know mockery could serve a particular goal of getting people to view uh, this certain viewpoint in a very negative light, which is, which is what your goal is, because you, want, you don't want them to view it as an intellectually viable option, but rather you want them to really look down upon this and you feel that ridiculing it would assist in that process. But it could also be the case that as you're ridiculing, that, okay, you may have assisted many people in you know, uh, uh, you know, being cemented in terms of the, the truth of the falsity of that stance, but you're still pushing away a lot of people who still adopt that stance. And so yeah. here you have to ask yourself, is there, if we're going to think in consequentialist terms here, is there another approach I could take which will achieve the same purpose, which is that I really want people to look down on this viewpoint, intellectually speaking, but at the same time, not really resort to personal insults, uh, you know, questioning the intelligence of people that are adopting this viewpoint, uh, mocking them, etc. And here one could say, yeah, you could critique uh, different viewpoints in uh, more harshly than others without resorting to mockery. I mean, you could use strong language. Yes. You could say this is absolutely nonsensical. This is an absolute self-contradiction. You could use strong terms to describe just how absolutely invalid and baseless a viewpoint is, achieve your purpose, which is really to get people to look down on that stance, but at the same time, not resort to any immature personal attacks or, or mockery or ridicule. Um, and yeah, so exactly consequentially speaking, you've attained and what you wanted to attain, and you've avoided the negative harms that would have been associated with you adopting the ridicule approach. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's why when we consider the default position that we just spoke about and considering the objectives of freedom of speech, when you apply it to specific scenarios, you could end up with the outcome that you just discussed, which is, well, at the end of the day, I may be winning over a certain audience, but the other target audience I'm losing because I'm going to cement their position because they're going to see my mockery and attack as basically a, 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 an error in reasoning that I'm attacking the man and not the ball, yeah? So it's an ad hominem, if you like, maybe, or you're just being uh, using insults, but you're not providing a an argument that has any substance. So you may cement the position of the detractors, right? So you're not achieving the objective in the first place. So that's exactly the point. You have to apply the the principles that we just mentioned with having the goals of freedom of speech in mind and when you apply it to a certain scenario you do that ut utilitarian calculus and you may end up with the conclusion that you just met end up ended up with for sure and when you, whenever you read or listen to the testimony of anyone 
who changed his mind about something. So someone that converted to Islam, someone that converted to Christianity, someone that became a Republican, someone who became a Democrat. Whenever you listen to stories or whatever, it, it usually involves either, you know, someone uh, being intellectually convinced um, or someone who was swayed through very positive and, uh, you know, and friendly treatment, uh, or they saw a dream or whatever, right? Um, those are the most common. Like, you never hear someone saying, yeah, I eventually agreed with that stance because I really couldn't take the pressure of being ridiculed anymore. Um, and so I decided that this was the view that I wanted to adopt and embrace. Uh, you know, it, it, when, whenever... People talk about being ridiculed. Uh, it, it's always not in the context of, okay, I'm, I'm intellectually convinced now uh, because I couldn't take the ridicule anymore, but rather, uh, you know, the, they talk about why they fell into depression, why they felt bullied, why they felt like a, so, a social outcast yes. or, or whatnot. So you just have to look anecdotally at the testimony of people just through common sense. But, you know, yeah, for sure. Whatever we are, whatever setting you are in, whatever, all these self help books. I talk about you know how to convince your boss to do this, how to be good yeah. to your fellow peers at work, how to how to how to get what you want from this person. None of them involve ridicule. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm, and I'm they always involve book. speaking yeah. properly, being calm, being civil. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading a book called "You're Not Listening." Um, I think the subtitle is um, "What You're Missing and Why It Matters." And you know, when you listen with the intention to understand. You know, you want to engage with people and you seek to understand them and you want to be understood. And that's ha that happens within a framework of being sincere to their well-being and to, to in, within a framework of civility. But I just want to just really emphasize the points as principles to deal with these type of detractions is by saying, well, the the main the the, the, the key point is to have the objectives of freedom of speech in mind, truth, accountability, progress, human flourishing. Once you have those objectives in mind and you understand that gratuitously insulting and degrading do not necessarily lead to those objectives, they could be a counter to those objectives. And you understand that the default position is to be civil. The default position is to be as nice as possible, is to express yourself in the best possible way to achieve those particular outcomes. When you have that as the default, when specific scenarios come, come into play, such as the one that you just uh, expressed, then you'll apply those principles and the objectives in mind of freedom of speech in that context. And you will do your own assessment and realize maybe what, what you've just realized in actual fact, in order for me to truly achieve the objectives, I'm not going to, I, I might be assertive. I might, uh, you know, have an intellectual tone and say that this thing is ridiculous and irrational, but I'm going to be as civil as possible and I'm not going to resort to mockery and gratuitous insult because it will be, you'll go against the very objectives of the, my speech and freedom of speech, which is to convince the, the collective of a particular truth, not just one part of it. Because if it's just one part, you just want to convince your side then what you're being, you, you, you're being uncivilized, maybe you're being immoral because you're being partisan. Right. Um, so maybe one could argue that. But anyway, the point is we need to have those default positions and those objectives in mind. And when other great areas come into play, then we have to assess them in light of that. And that's why I mentioned here. So, yes, the, the moment one expresses themselves, they have to risk offending others and risk being offended. But there are obvious black and white scenarios. And there is a fine line between deliberate and unintended insults. 
yes, for sure, one person's insults could be another person's form of dialogue. And there is a cultural thing going on as well. And that's why even in uh, in usul, in usul al-fiqh, you have urf, which is determinative. It's a, it's a, it's a legal moral principle, urf, in many cases, right? The social custom. Like if you were to call my mom's house, you probably think we're arguing all the time because <laughs> that's how Greeks express themselves, yeah? You know, we break plates at weddings, yeah? We're just like... You know, we're crazy, we're crazy people. Are you guys have an argument? No, we're just having a civil conversation. Yeah. You see my point? You know, there are cultural differences for sure. Anyway, so you gotta invite me to one of those. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So rather than just allowing ourselves just to free to hate and free to curse and degrade, thereby not achieving the objectives of freedom of speech, the onus is on us to establish a framework of civility, which includes the things I talked about about keeping the objectives in mind and having those default moral principles in place. So this, what, what is this going to involve? It's going to involve sincerely trying to understand each other's sensitivities so that we could better convince, educate, and express ourselves. And that's why Allah says, call to the way of Allah with hikmah. Hikmah is applied knowledge, saying the right thing in the right way at the right time, because there's a certain objective you want to fulfill, right? Yes. Could you say shirk is... Uh, dumb it's foolish it's evil you can't say that because that's what you believe but is that hikmah is that what allah wants you to say to this individual person no in many cases no because you have a certain objective you want to create an awakening within them create a realization of the truth within them so you're going to be far more sensitive to to that (coughs) excuse me far more sensitive to that and you're going to use wisdom to try and create that awakening within them right um and that's why we would argue with freedom comes great responsibility. We have a great responsibility to engage with each other in ways that are best. Now, this doesn't mean we're against intellectual dialogue. Like the good, the great thing about the Islamic intellectual tradition for over a thousand years, we already have answered the detractors. It's in the books, right? You know, one would say something about the Prophet wasallam. This is how we would respond. The detractors say this. This is our response. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. We have a great intellectual tradition and we already have answers to these so-called insults, but it's in an intellectual tone. It was done in an intellectual way. And, you know, it, it, you know, we, we, it, it was, it's not based on, you know, threatening any civility. Um, and it's done in a way that's being averse to insulting deliberately and degrading others because we know there are objectives to these to, to this discourse. Yeah. So one would argue, you know, you could be intellectually robust, you could disagree, but you could maintain an intellectual t- tone. And the Islamic tradition promotes this. And remember, it's not just about expressing yourself in any way that you want. There is a competition of values that we just mentioned. And when you see Islamic values expressing themselves and manifesting themselves in society, you saw some great results. Now, I don't like to uh, over-glorify Islamic history. I think over-glorifying your history is a sign of a defeated mind, for sure. There's there's lots of bad and good things. But the good things that happen, you could trace back to the Islamic tradition. So, for example, you know, Islam is all about argumentation and discussion. Look at the Quran, for example. The associate professor in her book, Um, God's arguments, right? Uh, Logic, rhetoric, and legal reasoning in the Quran. She says, reasoning and and argument are so integral to the content of the Quran and so inseparable from its structure that they in many ways shape the very consciousness of Quranic scholars. And uh, Rosalind Ward-Gwyn, she cites uh, quite a bit in her book, from what I remember, she cites a a Tufi, right? The the Hanbali intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, you know, she she sees the Quran is full of arguments and, and discussion. Yeah? We're, we're not afraid of argumentation and debate. It's not about running away from an argument. Just be civil. And we would argue that the, the values that emanate from the Quran and the words and the teachings of the Prophet wasallam paved way to progress, truth and accountability while maintaining a sense of civility. And this is in our history, right? So, for example, truth. Allah says in chapter 2, verse 42, and mix not the truth with falsehood, nor conceal the truth while you know it. This is a value for us, right? Truth is a value. Allah is al-haq. He is the truth. Allah says, and enjoin on each other truth in verse 3 of chapter 108. What about accountability? A man asked the Prophet wasallam, what is the best struggle? What is the best jihad? And the Prophet said, a word of truth in front of a tyrannical ruler, this authentic hadith in the Musnad of Ahmad. Also, Allah says in chapter 3, verse 104, let there be, let there rise amongst you a people, be among you a people who command the ma'roof, they command the good, they forbid the munkar, they forbid the evil. And they indeed are the successful ones, right? So there's a sense of, you know, and that goodness, that commanding the good and forbidding the evil includes holding power to account. So we're about accountability, we're about truth. What about Islamic values promoting sincere debate and dialogue and discussion? Of course, look what Allah says to Fir'aun. I know this is a misunderstood, you know, narrative, but Fir'aun was like the, one of the, the greatest, uh, is a manifestation of human evil, right? An oppressor, he thought he was God. And what does Allah say to Musa alayhi salam? To speak layyinan, softly, right? And speak to Pharaoh mildly, perhaps he may accept admonition. This is in chapter 20, verse 44. Yes, when the dialogue continued, Moses, Musa salam, had to change strategy, had to be a bit more assertive, for sure. But the default position, as I said, default position, civil, soft, kind, yeah? And Imam Qurtubi, the 13th century Islamic uh, exegete and scholar, he, he mentioned something very nice here. He says, if Moses was commanded to speak Maldi to Pharaoh, then it is even more appropriate for others to follow this command when speaking to others when commanding the good and forbidding the evil. As one scholar once said, you know, you're not a Moses and the person you're talking to is not a Pharaoh. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, Allah talks about, you know, we need to get to know one another, to know what makes us distinct. You know, a lot of liberals, liberal Muslims, they misunderstand this verse. Uh, they think it means that we should come together what makes us common. It doesn't actually mean that necessarily. Uh, the classical commentary also primarily includes that you have to know what makes you distinct because distinctions are empowering. If you can make distinctions, then now you know the person. Now you, you'll be able to relate to the person in the most appropriate way. So Allah says, O people, we created you from a single man and a single woman and made you into races and tribes that you get to know one another. To know one another. In Allah's eyes, the most honored of you are the ones most mindful of him. Allah is knowing all aware. So again, you know, we want to know other people. Allah commands us to know other people. He advises us to know other groups, other people, other societies, to know, to understand what makes them distinct, which is very interesting because it's the distinctions that usually cause fear and anxiety. But if you understand them, then it's less likely to have fear and anxiety about another people, right? So holding to account truth, accountability is all part of the Islamic tradition. Um, even when we're sharing Islam, Allah says in chapter 16, verse 1 to 5, we mentioned this before, you know, call to the way of your Lord with wisdom and good instruction and argue and debate and discuss with them in ways that are best. As Jamakhshari, the grammarian said, this means in the best possible manner without gruffness or, or harshness. Also, 
you know, Islam does not allow the wanton insult of people's religious beliefs because it's going to lead to them to in, lead them to insult Allah. So mockery begets mockery, right? Insults beget insults. And it's like you've been infinite regress of insults. We have chaos yeah. society, right? So the default position is to promote harmony. What does Allah say in chapter 6, verse 108? Oh, believers, do not insult, insult what they invoke besides Allah or they would insult Allah spitefully out of ignorance, yeah? So there is an ethic here. If you mock an insult, it's going to beget mockery and insult. So the default position is not to do that, yeah? And this also includes the modern-day religion, like secular symbols. We have to be also sensitive. Now, I'm not a scholar to apply it in a modern world, but I'm just doing tadabur here, pondering, because I got caught in a sticky wicket many, many years ago in Turkey. I'm not going to expand more on it. Yeah. But yeah, I think many people know what happened. You know, that was a silly thing to do, right? Obviously, I have my positions, but yeah, yani, you've gone, you've gone back though. You can go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful oh, place, okay. beautiful people, uh, amazing people. Yeah, um, there's a lot of khair and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of goodness in people in the the practicing and the seculars. Yeah, uh, and uh, the seculars just don't know. They just don't know much about Islam. They need. Uh, they need good friendship. They need love from the practicing folk. They need, you know, to unravel some false historical and philosophical assumptions that they have and win their hearts over. That's that's the job that we should be doing, you know. Bring there there are there are our brothers and sisters at the end of the day, and we need to win them over. And the best way to do that from a kind of social perspective is not to be too ideological about the whole thing, because a lot of people have certain histories and contexts and misunderstandings. Once you unpack all of that and unravel that. Then you know they they you don't have, know how to tap into them. Then yeah, yeah, you, you just need tap to understand into them personally for sure. So, um, so that's so that's something very important. So the point here is, you know, uh, Islamic values when they were manifested themselves in 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 society, you know, look 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 what historians had to say. For example, but, but uh, I, I I did just want to quickly remind or uh, remind you you and myself in the list. Listeners about you know the ayahs of the Baqarah, you know, that yes. were also instructed to tell the non-believers to bring forth their evidence, yes, they're truthful. And so th this is why when it comes to uh, discussions with a lot of uh you know several non-Muslims, which is that oh, you know, if we lived in an Islamic state, you guys wouldn't give us full reign to preach our religion and whatnot. And, and what I tend to explain to them is that there may very well be restrictions on how you are able uh, to, to, to preach your faith. But at the end of the day, my faith is instructing me to tell you to give me the case for your faith. Yes. Bring forth your evidence of your case is true, right? Uh, and your faith does not obligate you to preach in a particular manner, right? So I am not, we're not forcing you to disobey anything from your scripture. Your religion teaches you to preach, but it doesn't say how. We are restricting the how, but we're still giving you the opportunity to preach. But it could be in the form of one-on-one -on -one dialogues. It, uh, uh, sure, we, you know, Islamic states may not permit you, know, you passing around pamphlets in the middle of the street because we also have a higher objective, which is to you know, facilitate an environment for people so that you know, their salvation is secured and blah, blah, blah. We could get into that later. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that we are still obligated to ask you to give us the arguments from your faith. So if you're passionate about preaching Christianity, I will come and ask you 
give me the evidence for Christianity. Because yes, but also, so yeah. you have the opportunity to give your argument. And no. I'm supposed to also ask you why you're, you are upon your faith. And you could also explain to me why you reject Islam. And give me the reasons, as long as it's all relayed and communicated in a proper manner. And look, so we, no we, one is ultimately yeah. restricting anything substantial that you yes. want to express. It's like, regulating and setting some guardrails on the method as to how you could express it. Yeah, so I think, yeah, so perfect. And that's why when you look at Islamic history, medieval Baghdad, you had like even atheists on the panel of discussion. You had Christians, you had people having this kind of ideological philosophical inquiry. What about the eighth century, the the Dahriya, right? The philosophical naturalists of the time, they were debated by Al-Ghazali and, and Abu Hanifa. We had intellectual debate and dialogue. No one runs away from that. But a good example, and, and I don't want to come across as, I mean, sowing anyone's beliefs here, but it's, I think it's a good example logically. Even in secular liberal society, there are debates about if the earth is flat or round. There's that discourse that happens online and offline. But do they have, do we allow in a secular liberal culture and social space, do we allow the flat earthers to preach at universities and schools? No. That's it. Case in point. I think creationism, now, evolution. Now, if you get, yeah, if you want now to 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 justify your position as a flat earther, then fine, justify it. If it's true, we'll adopt it. So that's, I think, a modern equivalent of what we're talking about. Yeah, because sometimes they want to portray us as, oh, you're harsh and you're restrictive and you're evil. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, we're not going to buy that. You have evidence. Give me your evidence. We could have that discussion for sure. Uh, but just like what happens in the modern secular liberal paradigm, if you have evidence for a flat earth, we're going to listen to it. If it's convincing, we'll adopt it. If it's not, then the default position is we're not going to allow you to basically promote this at schools and universities. It's not going to be in the curriculum. Simple as that. So this is the final two slides, I think. Uh, interestingly, these are manifestations of these values. And as I said, I'm not over glorifying our history. There's been rights and wrongs for sure. But the good you could trace back to some of the values that we just spoke about from the Quran and the prophetic way. Robert Briffaut, in The Making of Humanity, he explains how progress was not only evident in Islamic history, but European growth was facilitated by the Islamic civilization, right, which was based on Islamic values. He says in The Making of Humanity, for although there is not a single aspect of European growth in which the decisive influence of Islamic culture is not traceable, nowhere is it so clear and momentous as in the genesis of that power which constitutes the permanent distinctive force of the modern world and the supreme source of its victory, natural science and scientific spirit. Likewise, you have Professor Thomas Arnold in his famous book, The Preaching of Islam. He says Muslim Spain had written one of the brightest pages in the history of medieval Europe. Her influence had passed through province into the other countries of Europe, bringing into birth a new poetry and a new culture. And it was from her that Christian scholars received what of Greek philosophy and science. They had to stimulate their mental activity up to the time of the Renaissance. Now, as on a final point, how do we now look at it from a kind of dawah perspective? Now, if we have concluded that freedom of speech is about values, then we can raise certain key questions. Number one, which values do we adopt? Number two, which values do we prioritize over others? Number three, where do we get these values from?
Because as David Van Mill says, if freedom of speech and expression is contingent or based upon the competition of other values, which I think we philosophically robustly articulated, then let's ask these three questions. Number one, which values do we adopt? Number two, which values do you prioritize of others? And number three, where do we get these values from? Now, from an Islamic perspective, we would say Islam, because we could say we can show the, the veracity of the Islamic foundations, meaning that God exists, Allah is worthy of worship, the revelation is the Quran, the Prophet is the final prophet. And once we show that, then what these sources say about which values to adopt what these sources say about which values do you prioritize over others, what this these sources say about uh, where do we get these values from, then it is going to be true because what comes from truth is true. And, you know, obviously we don't have time to go through the intellectual foundations and spiritual foundations of Islam here, but raising these questions are very important because if freedom of speech is about, the restrictions of freedom of speech is about the competition of values, then which values, right? And which values do you prioritize of the others? What are their priority, right? What criteria do we use? Where do we get these values from? And we would argue, humbly, but assertively, that God exists. Allah is worthy of worship. The Prophet is the final prophet. And his revelation is the Quran. And we have evidence for this. And therefore, what comes from this with regards to what values to adopt? What comes from this with regards to what values we prioritize over others? And what comes from this in terms of where, where we, sh we should go to get these values is, is going to be true because it's come from a rational foundation that is true and what comes from truth is true. And I think the, I think the, the discussion we should be having is not just a political one and an abstract philosophical one, is to use these things concerning freedom of speech to bring people to Tawheed, to affirm the oneness of Allah and the fact that he's worthy of worship in essence for them to embrace Islam because you could link any discussion to the foundations of Islam even the freedom of speech discussion because if we know it's about a competition of values then which values do we adopt how do we prioritize them and where do we go to to derive these values we would say it's Allah and his messenger and we can prove that by showing evidence for why Allah is a reality why he's worthy of worship and why the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa is the final messenger. When we establish that, then those three questions that we just mentioned are easily answered. And then it would make people realize, okay, well, if I want the true conception of values, if I want to prioritize them in a way that God wants me to prioritize them, and if God is telling me to go to God himself, his revelation and his prophet for these values, and, and you could show that all of this is true, then it just follows that you should embrace Islam. So this is a way of show, bringing people to the Islamic paradigm by raising these type of questions. Don't don't just you know adopt a political, abstract, philosophical narrative on these issues just to defend our position. No, be assertive and use it as a way to bring people to the Islamic tradition. Because again, just to repeat, if freedom of speech is about values, then we could raise these questions. Which values do we adopt? Which do we values do we prioritize? And where do we get these values from? And if you say, well, it's the Quran and the Sunnah. We have evidence for this. These are true. And whatever comes from truth is true. Um, so final, final slide. Alhamdulillah. I know it's been quite long, but it's not as long as your four hour one that you said that you had the other day. <laughs> so look, obviously the elephant in the room is about blasphemy, right? What about blasphemy? You can't insult 
the prophets and of course you can't this is our red line we already said that freedom of speech is about competition of values one of our key values is valuing what is sacred valuing what the sacred considers to be valuable and what the sacred tells us what is the red line and the red line is insulting the prophets not just muhammad but any of the prophets and in islamic political framework it's unacceptable and it's punishable punishable by law obviously with due process and justice and so on and so forth but the point that needs to be understood here is islam respects the sacred a society that has nothing sacred is a very dangerous society because more boundaries can easily change based on the changing winds of political interest power and desire in actual fact when you remove the sacred Power and desire become sacred. Ego becomes sacred, right? Now, this doesn't mean that you, someone who disagrees with the Prophet or with a moral position, it doesn't mean these people can't articulate themselves in intellectual tone. We already said, of course, but if someone deliberately wants to go out there and degrade and insult what we consider sacred, this is our red line. This is our red line, 100%. And we can justify that with the perspective that we spoke about just a few seconds ago concerning well freedom of speech is about values and who draws the line and where where do you get these values from but the point here is we have nothing to be ashamed of we believe in the sacred we believe that there are red lines and it's good for not only uh, uh this good for the whole of humanity and society and a society that has nothing sacred is an extremely dangerous society and with all due respect we've seen this with secularism because what does this, what does secularism do it removes the sacred from the public sphere that's what liberalism does as well look what's happening in canada with this kind of euthanasia right and with this um you know uh, you know if if you can't open a, a can it's too hard for you now you don't want to take care of you you know, I think they offered some old lady. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to die? Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to kill yourself? Right. That's what I saw on the news. I don't know if it's true or not. But the point is, they're removing the sacred, right? And we saw this on a ideological level because secularism in the past what one two hundred years has been the most bloodiest one in two hundred years we've ever we've ever we've ever experienced, right? Because they removed the sacred, right? And if you they're, they're the sacred, also. This they're also distorting the sacred. I mean, the sacred, according to French law, is the national anthem and the flag. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, the thing is, if you remove what is truly sacred, then something else is going to be sacred, which is things that are not worthy of being sacred. Exactly. That's even worse. And, and which is even worse. Or it could just be your, your own ego or your shahawat, your blameworthy desires, or your nafs and your ego and your and your and and your and your kind of your lowly desire for power. And that destroys societies. Look what's happened in the past 200 years. The amount of bloodshed in the name of non-sacred ideologies. Come on, man. So uh, this should be respected. The fact that we have red lines should be respected. The fact that we know where to draw the line should be respected. And this and Muslims are the final hope, I think, for 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 civilization. To be honest, we having we have a we have a, a, a so called civilized world that no longer has anything sacred. The only thing that has remained sacred is your own desires, and that's what's happening with the postmodern discourse now, right? God is gone. Valuing God is gone. Any uh, kind of hierarchy is gone. Truth itself is not sacred anymore. Is not valuable anymore. There is no objective methodology to come to an objective truth. That's the postmodern discourse, right? In general, 
the only thing that matters in postmodern discourse is your ego. What I want to do and how I want to identify me, 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 right? It's the, it's, it's, and just like what Martin Ling said, he made a very important point. He said, man cannot not worship. And he argues, and this really is what the liberals or even the postmodernists want. He said, he argues that, you know, the modern man is chasing absolute freedom. Right? You remove hierarchy, you remove any form of so-called oppression, you remove even truth, because truth could be restrictive, right? You remove anything sacred, any hierarchy, because you just want to chase absolute freedom. And he argues that that can never happen because absolute freedom is an aspect of divinity. Allah is as-samad, he is the independent, he is al-ghani, he is the rich, he is the absolutely free. So their chasing of this notion of absolute freedom is really their, their fitrah, their innate disposition, yearning for Allah, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know where we're going with this, but I hope I've made my point. Yeah, yes. Um, um, <clears throat> no. Um, uh, That's it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Uh, yeah, when you're when you're quoting uh, Martin Links, I, I remember this uh, statement from Dostoevsky, and I just want to read it out. Um, he said in his book, The Adolescent, page three hundred seventy-three, "To live without God is nothing but torment, and it turns out that what gives light is the very thing we curse, and we don't know it ourselves. It's impossible for a man to exist without bowing down. Such a man couldn't bear himself, and no man could." If he rejects God, he will bow down to an idol, a wooden one, or a golden one, or a mental one. They're all idolaters. Not godless, that's how they ought to be called. Uh, By the way, I just want to yeah. do a final note. just want to thank you for your hard work. Thank you for your essays. Thank you for... Your, your service to the dawah I have benefited tremendously When I'm asked about deism for example It's not really my area My area is theism And I'm like there's an amazing paper by Basam You need to read it So keep on doing this great work um, And this type of work transcends time You know sometimes we focus on videos And reactions We're going to be forgotten in 10-20 years We're going to be irrelevant but what stays is writing, what stays is the behind the scenes work. And I know you do a lot of that. And I'm not saying this to throw dust in your face. It's just a form of encouragement and to encourage others to take the Tao very, very seriously. It's not just about putting yourself on the front line and just, you know, being uh, YouTube superstars or YouTube, uh, you know, reactions and stuff like that. It's actually doing the groundwork, empowering others, developing others, writing, you know, a book's battery never dies, you know. Um, and it, that's what's going to be relevant. And it's and you, and wallahi, you know, sometimes when you do write and you do empower others, the the results you see after your death, right? Because how many times has someone written a book and it and it changed the world or it changed thousands of people? They wrote an essay and it changed thousands of people, uh, and that shows a lot of seriousness in your dawah work. And uh, I'd just like to applaud you for that and to encourage others to emulate that strategy as well. Yes, there is a need for the YouTube and the online and even the reactions. There's all that. There's need for everything. But there's also a revival that is needed for the seriousness of the behind the scenes, grafting, empowering others, writing, thinking, discussing. And I know we've had discussions privately, me and you, that we'd be trying to you know, help other people review other work, which 
you yourself could have saved thousands of, of people's iman and people don't even know. But Allah knows. And what Allah has ready for you, nothing, nothing in the world can match. So may Allah bless you. For your inspiring words, extremely motivational. They mean a lot to me. And, you know, obviously we've been following, uh, I've been following your work uh, ever since, uh, you know, you, you step onto the scene. Alhamdulillah, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that at least most of us, uh, you know, in the uh, apologetics or dawah uh, circuit are, are in close communication with each other, whether it's through WhatsApp groups or through dialogues such as these. And, uh, you know, just to, you know, uh, reassert what you just said, that it's, it's extremely important for all of us to aim to have some sort of sadaqa uh, jariya, because, you know, after, you know, after we go six feet deep, you know, uh, six feet underground, nothing remains but, but our works. And, and, and to, to know that, you know, we will still have uh, work still benefiting uh, others and, and, and that our hasanat have not come to an end, uh, that will be an extreme, you know, a huge blessing. And we ask Allah SWT to uh, help us continuously revise our sincerity and to make us sincere always and to accept our uh, very humble efforts because we are only being used as agents to convey, uh, you know, his, his glorious message uh, to, mm -hmm. to the world. And, um, you know, I, I uh, first, and I also, you know, before we come to a close that, you know, I first want to say for this uh, fascinating presentation. I mean, once again, what, what, what came out clearly from your presentation, similar to when we discuss, um, you know, so many other topics uh, pertaining to rights and, and other ethical matters is, is the importance of divine revelation by an objective moral arbiter, namely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, these matters cannot possibly be decisively uh, be settled uh, based on our rationality alone. And Muslims are honest enough to concede that, which is why we say in a very straightforward manner, as you have expressed in the last few slides that you went through, that we come to no moral cutoff points, such as ones that would be relevant in this topic of freedom of speech, for example, from divine revelation. And that any attempt to do otherwise would either result in internal contradictions or in external contradictions, where, which, whereby one stance would lead him to clash with other more fundamental and established moral principles, which you brilliantly expressed and conveyed as competing values. And it takes a considerable amount of genuine humility to be willing to restrict your own individual rights not merely for the betterment of the collective whole, but, but for your own individual self as well. You know, the, the Prophet it said, said that, you know, it's the tongue. It's the tongue that is one of the most, that, that was the most common things that, 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 that can take us to Jahannam. That's a very scary, it's a very scary thing. And at the same time, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's another hadith that's coming about. My, you know, Abu Hurairah said, I know of no one that consulted, that did shura, that consulted his companions more than the Prophet So he wanted people to speak. He wanted his companions to speak. Advise me. Say what's on your mind. Give me constructive feedback. We're all in this together to, to, to come and know the truth and to do things right. And so that is the, the ethos um, of, of, uh, of our deen as you be beautifully conveyed absolutely and it reminds me I think you could summarize everything we've said really and you could unpack it from this hadith which is 
the Prophet sallallahu alaihi said, uh, "Speak good or remain silent." <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that, sum- that summarizes everything. I know "good" is a heavy word, lots yeah. to unpack. But if you want to yeah. summarize the whole presentation, speak good or remain silent. Jazakallah for the opportunity, Habibi. Barakallahu feekum, Akhi Hamza, and inshallah, we definitely need to do this again. And 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 to our listeners and to yourself, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.